Welcome one and all to the final instalment of Out of the Broom Cupboard for Series 2. My name's Chris Johnson and we'll get onto the episode in just a sec. But first, I thank you to my patrons, my wonderful patrons, the producers of this show, the people who keep it on the internet by paying for its space, the people who are funding future ventures for this here show when we can do it in person as people in rooms again. Imagine that. Thank you for supporting it. I hope all the rewards and early releases that you've been given justify the money you've put forward. And if not, no refunds, jog on. But thank you very, very, very much. If you want to patron the show and get early access to anything that's coming in Series 3 or between then, head to patreon.com slash OOTBC. You can join us in the Discord, get perks in the post, etc, etc. And if you feel like you're going to miss my dulcet tones, because of course there'll be a break between Series 2 and 3, you can catch me in a weekly podcast, Big Damn Cast, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, etc. With my best mate Matt talking nerdy news, geeky gossip, and all the stuff that's fit to occupy your time until the grave. And slightly less depressing thoughts. <laughs> my guest this week is the one and only Russell T. Davies. Why did I want to talk to Russell for the show? Well, for starters, Russell has presentation experience and knows about studio work, but we really wanted to cover some more production angles this series, things about behind-the-scenes work on dramas, studio shows, scripting, how to get into the behind-the-scenes world of family entertainment and children's television. Russell's story is fascinating. He's most known to adult audiences for shows such as Queer as Folk, Second Coming, Casanova, Years and Years, Cucumber. But his experience as exec producer, showrunner, and writer for children's shows is formidable. He was the obvious choice for this, and I'm so happy that he managed to find time. Even in a pandemic world, he had stuff going on, but he managed to find some time to sit down with me. We wanted to do this episode for about a year, so we found the time. It happened. I am so delighted to finally present it. Here it is, the last in the current series with the marvellous Russell. It's out of the broom cupboard. Enjoy. He's a producer. Uh, his one of his like favorite sort of results of the work he's done because he produced Ed and Outcho is yeah. the fact oh, yeah. that Outcho Ouch- is vaguely described in the intro to I think the second edition of um, of the Writer's Tale. Oh, oh right, yes, 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 yeah, yes. Like, yes. Talking that cactus. Of the cactus or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> he, he, he read it. It was just sort of like that's brilliant like I, it's weird to think how ripples work in that way hey, like, there's outcho hey, mentioned hey, in a book hey. i'm reading for a show i admire and, and a writer i admire and, i mean it's you know it it, <laughs> it is unusual how our worlds have kind of crossed over um but we've never worked together so my my first question i suppose uh, as as we've started hi everybody uh, my first question i suppose russell is uh why, why am i why am i not uh, the lead in an upcoming uh, drama series. You're not good enough, love. Frank is similar that's, to that. Next question. Yeah. yeah we move I on. mean, that's... I think are you an actor? You're not an actor, answer. are you? You don't want to do that I am. Nonsense. That's where I started. Yeah. Oh, you do Pamtown stuff, don't you? It's a terrible yeah. life. You're much better off doing this, honestly. Oh, no, should seriously. I, uh, what an awful life. Should I take a uh, Should I take a careers test to find out what I should be doing? <laughs> yeah, well, acting now is a really good time to suggest being an actor now. Well done, good timing, Chris. Hello, Hi. welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining. Hello, me. indeed. And how is how is it being a writer in these times? Um, I guess that's well, not too funny enough. Exactly, not very different because we're lonely souls anyway. And weirdly, I was going to have some time off this year, so it's like the entire world has bent itself to my will. 
It knew. <laughs> Dwell it on it that. Knew. <laughs> well, you started the year um, uh, sort of outside of the realms of family entertainment. You were working on uh, now titled It's a Sin. Yes. Um, and that was bleeding over from the end of last year into this year. And, and like, how has the post-production been on a show that was finished before suddenly the oh, world stopped? fine, just a bit slower. Just ADR was hard because people had to do their, that's the additional dialogue recording, you know, the lines you pick up afterwards, they have to do it in their bedrooms, some of them. But fine, a little bit slower. But then we had lots of time. So um, I'm in a very lucky position of being completely uninconvenienced by the whole thing. Do you find yourself going back to old ideas and things like that in these these quieter times, or, or is enough keeping you busy that you don't really have the chance? Uh, what do you mean? Like thinking, rewriting things, or thinking of new things, or what do you mean? Um, yeah, like uh, reassessing stuff or, or ideas you've always thought, oh, if I had the time, I'd, I'd have a go at that, and oh, now all suddenly the there's a bit more time. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of that going on. Um, yes, I, uh, yes. I won't talk about stuff because it jinxes them. I've so learned to not talk about what you're doing next. Actually, I it's, it's called learned. the um, it's I, called I've the Guillermo that. del Toro effect. Well, why? What's that? Why does he he, he makes everything he wants to? What? No, that he he recently announced a list of about thirty plus film and television projects <laughs> that have died in pre-production or been yeah. delayed by someone else that have never happened for it's, him. Um, oh my god! Yeah, wow. yeah. I wanted his Disney Haunted Mansion movie for years, but it looks like they're going ahead with a different take now. Is that literally so... Disney's Haunted Mansion? Like, Walt Disney haunts it? Because I've watched that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be... Oh, my God, that's a pitch. That is actually... That's how, the that's how you dispel the frozen head rumour. Refer- no, not dispel it. You, it's, it's a horror <laughs> film, for God's sake. It's like floating through the air, freezing people as it breathes on them. Oh, that's literally the best pitch. Actually, that should be made by Disney. That should be made by Disney's rivals. That's mm. magnificent. HBO Max should get onto that one. Lovely. Just the quiet whistling of whistle while you work down a corridor as some scared teens are legging it, going, what is that? What is that? Disney's turn around. haunted mansion. <laughs> you see, here we are making children's things just by speaking. It's happening. I'm not sure how many children would watch that without peeing themselves, mind. But I guess that is, especially when it comes to, to genre stuff. Oh, look, a segue. Uh, and uh, genre fiction and drama for, for younger audiences. There is a balance to consider. Um, I one thing I and I'm gonna I'm gonna gush over you a bit in this, so apologies in advance. But like wow. one thing I I really adore about your work is is uh, not all writers manage it, but you're one of them that does. You don't talk down to a young audience when you make stuff for children's television and family television. You never think of the kids as needing a handheld every step of the way. That's nice. um, Thank you. Thank you. It, it's completely true. I, you know, I, 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 I had at one point I was paid money to introduce shows, which meant <laughs> I got previews of shows. Yes. And it was always a joy to get hold of shows where I was like, oh, this is genuinely great. And your work was amongst the stuff at CBBC when I was there that was like that. Oh, thank um, you. Do you have to make very a very sort of is there an ongoing conscious? Um, a census of your work as you go when you're writing for for children's fiction or family drama or or is it more a case of you look back at it after draft one say and go oh no uh, no, maybe no, no. That, maybe this no well you do that with every script naturally but no it's it's because uh, i kind of i kind of worked out you'd ask a question like this and i've been spending <laughs> days thinking about it wishing i could come up with a really wise answer but there isn't one it's, it's as simple as when you talk to a child you use this voice and when you talk to your granny you use this voice when you talk to your lover you use this voice and you talk to the man in the shop it's that we all modulate our voices all the time so writing if, if you're writing for 12 year olds you just modulate to that without any thought i don't i don't go through any 
psychic process. I don't put any thought into it at all. You just naturally do it. And But I suppose what you're saying is, and thank you for that compliment, and if that's true, then that sort of touches on a rule, about a rule, a, a thinking that I have about television, full stop, which is that all television should be more intelligent. And that all television talks down to everyone all the time. I literally, yeah. if you, you want a camera on me as a night of television, of primetime television broadcasting, where characters are forever going, what do you mean? And I sit there going, it's obvious what he means. You know, someone says, we've got to go back to the bank because they've left their money behind. And they go, what do you mean? Why? Aren't you watching? And I mean, there's so much of that. There are pages and pages and pages of Holby City and all the shows. of like, what do you mean? Why? What are we doing this for? And that drives me mad in everything. So I don't do that in adult television and I don't do it in children's television. And, and I suppose I am keen to push things. It's funny because now we've got little kids in our family now. We've got like, 18-year-old twins in my family. And it is it does make me laugh where everyone, people walk in the room and they go, hello, 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 little twins. And I sit there going, why don't we say hello, twins? It's sunny outside. Do you want to go for a walk? You know, why, why do we talk to them in that silly voice all the time? Why? It's like, why? They must think, are these people odd? So I don't know why we do it. Everyone kind of does assume a condescending voice with which to talk to children. Um, so I just don't do it. I think... And I've got away with murder as well. I think one of the trickiest things I did, it wasn't tricky, but the one where I took a deep breath was actually, um, old Jack's boat, you know, Bernard Crippins, um, that, that show for, for the episode, the one of after, folks, uh, the Christmas episode that is repeated every year, where it's revealed that his wife died many years ago. It's the story of how he met his wife and then he revealed it's Christmas, it's snowing, they all sing a carol. And you realize the person in the story was Jack's wife, who therefore has died years ago and he's missing her, which is, looks at the sky and he says, Merry Christmas. And it's Bernard Crippin, so you're filling up with tears. And I remember thinking, I did sit at my desk thinking, is that a bit much for under fives? That's an under fives. But then, but then you sort of think, you think an under five breaks their heart if they lose their felt pen. And they've all lost a pet. And actually, a lot of, a lot of sadly, there are under fives who've lost their mum. Certainly, under fives who've lost their gran and stuff like that. It's not unknown territory. So that was a rare example of me pausing at the desk and thinking, can I do this? Although equally, when I sit there and think, can I do this? That's like a red rag to a bull. And I go, yes, I'm going to slaughter them. Slaughter in old Jack's boat. <laughs> that village is left a bloodbath. <laughs> it's like Fireman Sam. It's a conspiracy. There's, it's nothing but a body count. Um, which is he my starts, theory on Fireman Sam. Yeah, he starts um, those fires. Yeah, yeah. Keeps himself at work. I mean, come on. Like, it's a small yeah. village. They always set fires. Surely someone's been a victim here at some point of something. Yep. Uh, and they're all being kept a close eye on. Um, uh, he's Fireman Sam is Batman. And uh, Ponty Pandy is Arkham Asylum. But anyway... Um, I once got in terrible thought. trouble with the producer when I went in Children's because we had uh, Postman Pat in the studio. And, and like, a, like an interview, like this, an interview with Postman Pat in the studio. This was on a, on a Saturday morning <laughs> show called On the Waterfront. And this was... So a man came in in a Postman, Cat, Postman Pat costume and sat in a chair. And after every show, you have a post-mortem. There was a Saturday morning show on the Monday morning of post-mortem. And I sat there going, that wasn't Postman Pat. That was a man dressed up as Postman Pat. And I think all children <laughs> know that wasn't Postman Pat. I, oh, the producer got so cross on me. On that, not the overall producer. I think he, he rather liked it. But um, the producer of that week's show was like furious because I was demeaning the great Postman Pat interview. And I was going, it wasn't an interview. It was an interview with a man dressed up as him. It probably wasn't even the proper voice. And kids know. Kids don't walk into... Oh, yeah. Disneyland and say, well, I've met Mickey Mouse. They all know they've met someone dressed up as Mickey Mouse. Yeah. 
There's sort of there's sort of like a middle yeah. ground. Like the youngest kids are like, sure, it's Mickey. Then they get a bit older and they go, no, it isn't. And then they hit kind of eighteen and above. But and I like think, myself I think, now just go, oh, that's no, Mickey. Hi. I think on some. I mean, I love it. It's it's operating on many textual levels. I think even the three year old kids saying, oh, it's Mickey, know that it isn't. They know. Mm. They do on some level. They know, and they know they're in a game where that the represent. They never put this into words, but this is a representation of Mickey. How do we get onto this? It's children's television. It's interesting. It's kids' television. It's completely yeah. on topic. Well, well speaking of uh, of your earlier kids' TV work, I mean, people are going to want me to ask about you know Century Falls and stuff, but I'm going to touch on something that I'm just curious from my POV. Um, you've had a very brief presenting career for children's oh, TV. Oh, I did. Yes, yes, yes. How brief was it? It was one episode. It was, it was, I, I was on the dole in Cardiff and I'd worked in children's telly and the lovely man in charge called Peter Charlton um, was lovely. He was the producer, the senior producer of Why Don't You? Lovely man who liked me and he said, you should audition, you should be on screen. I can't think why, but there we go. Great big glumping thing that I am. And um, so I did and, and I was on the dole at the time. I was, the, Why Don't You? would finish. I was back on the dole. And um, so why not? I went, yes, I'll do that. So they sent me up to Television Centre for an audition. Um, actually, the audition was in the North Acton rehearsal rooms, I think. And, um, and well, I thought, you know, I kind of thought everyone in the world is going to audition for this and everyone can sing and dance and do that. And I thought, what can I do that other, other people can't do? I thought, I can draw. So I did this audition. I walked in with an easel and a bunch of felt pens and a whole load of pre-prepared drawings that had, like, the bodies and basal writers it was at the face. It was clever. And I did one of Roald Dahl's revolting rhymes, um, the, one, the Little Red Riding Hood. I had one. Um, uh, the one where she pulls a pistol from her knickers. That one. So I did that one. And I got the job. So they gave me the job. It was just remarkable and very strange. So, and they got me an equity card. Remember the time getting an equity card? Well, it still is, but it was the be-all and end-all. It was very hard to get one. So they promised to get me an equity card. So I went to London. I did rehearsals with um, lovely um, Chloe Ashcroft was in it. And um, and Ian McLaughlin. They were so nice to me. A lovely woman called Christine Hewitt producing it. They were such a nice team. And I went into the studio. It was done as live, more or less. It was it was. 20-minute episode, you had 25 minutes in the studio to knock it off. So we did my episode. And, of course, I had to sit there and draw and look at the camera and go, blah, 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 tell them a story about a man who worked in a post office who became a clown. There we go. And um, so I did my story. And literally at the end of recording, they went, hold on, right, you know, the floor manager is listening to the gallery. Well, we stop recording. And they wait to do any pickups. And, you know, so hold on, little message from the gallery. And I sat there in my little chair with Chloe Ashcroft smiling and me being, being lovely, thinking, well, I'll have to do my bit again because I didn't look at the camera once. You're supposed to look at the camera doing the whole thing. I didn't look at the camera once, so I'll have to do a pickup. And then they went, no, that's fine, everyone, that's great. Moving on, next episode. And I, was like, and I went, hold on, hold on, hold on. I can't, can't, I didn't look at the camera once. Can I do it again? little conversation took place between the floor and the gallery. Eventually the gallery said, come up here. So I went up those gallery steps into the gallery where they said, look. And they played it back. And there I was looking into camera for the entire thing. And I literally had no memory. My memory had just, my mind had just screamed all the way through it, basically. But, and although that's quite a normal reaction, I think, to doing a bit of as live telly sort of stuff. I mean, that isn't what put me off. I literally walked out to that studio with the voice in my head saying, never again. You were literally on the wrong side of the camera. Because I sat there, you sit there with all the floor staff behind the camera, and there's the floor manager with their clipboard, and there's the props people, all those people. I'd already done those jobs on Why Don't You? 
And um, I just knew. I just said that's. And they'd gone to so much effort to get me an equity card, to slot me into their rehearsal schedules, to, to slot me to transmission. And then this is the old days. I had to write a letter, no email. I didn't even phone them or something. I just wrote an old fashioned letter <laughs> saying, Dear Christine, thank you so much for that wonderful opportunity. But she must have thought I was mad. I went back on the dole. I went back on the dole. I did. Um, but it was the wrong job. I knew in my heart it was the wrong job. Isn't that funny? It's sort of the reverse of the the old presenter or, or, or um, lead adage of like you work your way up and do this and you do that. The, the sort of the, the common story is that like oh I got a researcher job on it and then one day someone said like well, have you not tried on screen and they bring yeah, it on yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it's sort of the, the reverse in that there are some people who would like to be on screen don't want to be in the lead up to it sometimes end up stuck there yes. and then don't leave they just oh, stay it's like, and it's like the usherette being picked out you're the lead the lead's following yeah. you're taking me in there and I was the leader I was the usherette who just went oh no thanks <laughs> I'm going back to selling ice creams thank you <laughs> it's quite refreshing though because you know a lot of people like you say would have just gone no I'll keep it I'll keep the wage I'll do this it was other, very but- strange that I knew I knew I can't begin to tell you it was it was, it was I I I mean, you are when you're young, I suppose. I'd have, doubt, I'd have more doubts now, I think, now. As you get older, you think, oh, I don't know anything. When you're young, you're kind of a bit more certain. I literally I literally went onto the door saying, no, that's the wrong job. And what a laugh. What a laugh to be on telly. What nice people they were. I could do it. There was no doubt about that. And, and I loved the job. But I am amazed, looking back, that I was so certain that it was the wrong thing. And it was. I was right. Ha! So there. It's definitely a symptom of the, the the curse of being in the creative industry is that if you get a snifter that you're not going to enjoy something, it does, does I find, in different jobs I've done, it overhangs you a little bit. It mm. creeps around behind you all the time. I and you, find, you must have felt that hand on your shoulder of like, well, you're not yes. going to enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if that's true because I did enjoy it. It was lovely. It was kind of, it was odder than that. And I do find, you know, we were here to talk about working in children's and, 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 and you know, for anyone wanting to work in children's, that I absolutely agree with you about that enjoyment thing do the jobs you enjoy but I do find that if you're given a job you'll enjoy it if you're that sort of person I suppose but you know it, it, it's like you, um, you might think ooh am I this I mean I worked on magazine shows I worked uh, I worked on comedy sketch shows and I'm I worked on you know I've done quizzes I've done all sorts of things and I'm not necessarily that sort of person but go in there and work hard and like the people you're with and you have a great time but again, you know, if if you if things feel a little different or you feel a different path calling, then mm. maybe that's what maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was the seeds of your future going. No, hang on, come over here, come over here. Yes, because uh, after working on many roles within children's TV, eventually you get a hand at writing your own drama. Mm. Uh, how did because Dark Season was first, wasn't it? Yes, that was the first. Yes, 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 yes. The first yeah. like that... full blown. This this series is yeah. yours, baby. Because uh, how did grew... those conversations start? Well, I thought I was lucky I was in the right place because that grew directly out of Why Don't You? I worked on Why Don't You, which is a, a kid's holiday morning um, a, a magazine show. I mean, when I worked today, kids used to hate Why Don't You? <laughs> the viewers used to hate it, let's be honest. All that terrible show. It was absolutely brilliant to work on. It was, a, And actually, I went to work on it kind of very aware that the audience used to hate it. I think no one had ever dared say that. But it was like, I know, I know. I was in school when it was on. And I know the kids don't like this because it's presented by kids. They automatically didn't like them because they were they were they were there telling them what to do, and um, so I turned that into much more. <laughs> are you laughing? I turned that into much more of a drama. I started to 
They were the first script. Those were the first scripts I was ever written because the marvelous producer was the loveliest man called David Evans who gave me my first ever job in television. But he was also a little bit of a drunk, and he liked to drink at lunchtime. And um, and one afternoon he had a bit too much to drink. and said, "Oh, I can't write this. Can you write it?" And handed me the script for what was a magazine show. And then I started to write them all. 50 quid a script. 50 quid. And um, it was a fortune then. This is like 1984. And so I started to put in gags. I started to put in links. I started to make things continuous, running gags. And then I started heading slightly towards, you know, they'd go off and do little, we visited, um, what's that country called? Where's Oslo? Um, oh, that, that place. Norway. I, <laughs> <laughs> I went to Norway. I, I went to Norway with Keith Chigwin, actually. And, um, and it was during Keith, uh, as Keith admits himself, it was during Keith's drinking phase. I met him again many years later. He had no memory whatsoever. Good. Not, not, not just of me, I mean of Norway. <laughs> I, await, I await this memoir with that title. <laughs> <laughs> Remember Norway, Keith. It's an old line of mine. Um, anyway, so I built it up into more and more of a drama until eventually I worked on I worked on that for longer than I've ever worked on any show. I worked on it for about five years. And when I was leaving, the last episode, I'm going to make this entirely a drama. And all the kids were trapped in the cell and there was a supercomputer out of control and nothing could save them except this electric lemon. It was a real laugh. It was really funny. And and literally, Chris, I'm not kidding you, the viewing figures tripled. It went from 0.9 million viewers to 2.9 million viewers. And we beat this morning. This morning was already on ITV and we were the first show ever I think to beat this morning it was and it kind of made me sit there and go oh you're good at that you're really really good at that so I kind of I took one of those stories we had a kind of story where the gang had all gone off to Loch Ness to search for the monster the why don't you gang on the way there they stopped to make recipes and play various quizzes (laughs) like they always did but um, and we couldn't afford Loch Ness so we just went to some pond (laughs) outside Edinburgh it was like what do you look at it now when you look at the real Loch Ness you go that wasn't even remotely like it. Anyway. It was Lockless. So, Lockless! <laughs> so um, I kind of, that was written like an adventure. I thought, thought, well, I could write something like that and do that as a one-off story. And it was called The Adventuresome Three, first of all, which was Marcy and, and, and what are they called? What are they called in Dark Season, those lead characters? Um, anyway, Marcy and her friends. Um, Marcy, uh, Reet, Reet and Thomas. That's it, of course. I love the name Thomas. Um, so that I wrote that up as a 25 minute thing nothing to do with why don't you just as its own little thing and at that point I was very very lucky because I was working in the corridors of, of the BBC I was still freelance but um I wrote it up into what was eventually dark season and instead of sending it just as a I didn't have an agent or anything but instead of sending it to the BBC and ending up on a slush pile, I sent it to Anna Hume, who was the head of children's. I sent it to, I was in Manchester, I sent it to London. So it went straight to her desk. She should have just chucked that away. I mean, that's a pretty odd thing to happen to get a script on her desk. But you know what? Life was less busy then, Chris. We didn't have this online nonsense. She wasn't checking her Instagram. She wasn't like <laughs> running through Spotify to see where Bell and Sebastian were. So, you know, so in those lackluster days, she obviously thought, someone sent me a script, I read it. And that is a horrible, I mean, fellow writers just hate listening to that story because yes, they picked up my very first script and yes, they made it. Sorry. <laughs> but it was good. We've it said before that there's there's no solid path anywhere, and as as some may listen to that and go, oh bloody hell, it can't yeah. be it can't be that simple. It can't be that yeah. simple. 
sometimes it is. I've always said before that uh, that luck, as far as my philosophy is, luck doesn't exist. It's about uh, a skill set or, or a plan meeting a moment where suddenly it's needed. Like, that's what it is. That's it's so two true. happenstances yes. slamming together. So never stop backed, learning and never stop yes. trying things. And backed uh, by hard work. It's like, because yeah. at that point, you know, I, I, I must have had a full-time job at that point. No, I'd moved to... Was I at Granada? No, I was at the BBC. And yes, because I remember getting the call. They phoned our head of departments. Anna Hume phoned our head of department's office. I said, yes, we're going to make it. I'm running down the corridor. I've never been as excited again ever since by any commission. You kind of realise the first one is the most exciting. And if you if you want to hate me on that story, I'll, you can double hate me because at the same time, in my naivety, without having an agent, I'd handed that script to Granada. So I had a friend who worked at Granada, a friend called Tony Wood, who's been very influential in my career, a lovely man. And um, and they showed that to their boss, David Liddermont, and Granada wanted to commission it as well. There was actually a bidding war, and then both channels got furious with me because I, you should never have shown a script to both channels at once. And I had to choose. And of course, I chose the, chose the BBC because the, the budget and the whole backing, the whole system is going to be better. So Granada were furious with me, blah, blah, blah. That's not a bad story, is it? Well, it's a vile story if you're unemployed and desperate to get your script on air. But what can I do? What can I do? Write worse? Sorry. <laughs> it's like, what, is it my, is it my yes. fault I wrote a product what? that they both wanted? <laughs> You said I should have made made one of them really crap and the other one like the actual one and then been like, let's see which one say, gets commissioned. Funny though, because you say there's no luck, uh, but actually <laughs> the reason my Dark Season got commissioned by the, by the BBC was Tony Robinson had taken a year off Maid Marian. That was a huge show, Maid Marian and yeah. the Merry Men. That was a huge show at the time. <laughs> He'd taken that off to, oh God, he went off to the Holy Land or something to make that, not personally, I mean he made some programme. I don't mean he yeah. went to political commission. Maybe it was, but off he went to the Holy Land. So there was a gap. There was no Maid Marian for a year and that was a show with a nice but I got very lucky because mm. the May Marion budget was substantial mm. and I got that slot on that budget thank you very much so weird isn't it These things so once the series press. started production what was because uh, at this point you, you, you were just the writer on this show yeah so what's that like like complete detachment beyond the selling of the script like how yes. does that feel it's very interesting yes because it hasn't been like that since that's a good question because yes I just handed it in and um and in fact, I was very busy on something because I remember this is how primitive this was all these years ago. It was handwritten and I got a lovely PA, my mate Chris. I wonder what happened to him. He was lovely. He typed it up for me. And I remember because him, I remember he said to someone else, because in, in, at the climax of Dark Season, this great big machine monster fueled by the devil called the Behemoth rises from the ground. He's this great villain called the Behemoth. And my friend Chris sort of said to another friend of mine, he said, I don't know what that script's about, really. There's a giant moth at the end. <laughs> <laughs> a giant moth comes out of the ground. I was like, okay, Chris. <laughs> Chris, just, just checking, Chris. You're, you're not on the design team for this one. No, nope. okay, good. That's fine. That's fine. Just keep editing. The, just keep writing it up. Thank you very much. Like a behemoth is a giant moth. I love that. Why not? Can I, re- can I just read over it? Make sure you haven't written a moth. Good. Okay, there we go. I've got to say, if I was a giant moth, I'd insist on being called behemoth. I am. And then I do a little wink like that. I am. Behemoth, get it? <laughs> That's the wink, to be done. Wink a giant beady eye. Because <laughs> if you are a giant moth, you've got to have a sense of humour, really. There you are, eating all the trousers in Britain. So, <laughs> where are we? So, anyway, so, so it was like, literally, it was typed up by someone else, sent off. I got called down on a Sunday. For some reason, 
Um, because he got made to fill a gap left by Tony Robinson, it, it was almost sort of slightly made in people's spare time, I was thinking. Because for a note session, I got called down on a Sunday. And, and I missed the train, I remember her. And I got late to all the way to Elstree. And again, arrive in London from Manchester, or train all the way to Elstree. So I was hours late by the time I got there. Uh, with the lovely producer, Richard, and, um, and gave me notes and normal notes. So I must have done a second draft, but that was kind of it. It's weird to mm. think, isn't it? And then off they went. And um, so, yes, I didn't have now. I did, uh, lovely Colin Cant directed it. So I had, and actually he came up with the title because they didn't like, I mean, The Adventures of Three is a bit rubbish. And um, someone had just come up with a book called The Power of Three, which is a great title. I was like, damn, that's even better because there are three lead characters in it. Um, so they needed to change. And it was uh, Colin Cant who'd been through, um, he'd been through the Bible. He found that in the book of Revelations, Dark Season. And I loved that. I was like, wow, can I, I didn't think I could have a title that strong. Do you know what I mean? That much, yeah. of, that much of a thriller. Um, so I did have a session talking to him through it, but then visited <laughs> set once. That was it, really. And um, they were lovely to me. And, oh, I went to rehearsals. I did go to rehearsals. So, but I was, yes, compared to now, very, very hands-off. I was in rehearsals for the arrival of Jacqueline Pierce, which is a very great moment. And where she walked in late. And there's you know, Kate Winslet sitting there. Kate Winslet as a 15-year-old was sitting there. All these young junior cast were sitting there with their chaperones. In walked Jacqueline Pierce about an hour late. She went, darling, I'm sorry I'm late. I've been up all night fucking a Russian priest. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, wow. And bear in mind, this is me. I'm, I'm a young man at this point. I'm thinking, oh, I like, I like this life. I genuinely, moments like that, you have a laugh when it's an anecdote for the rest of your life. But moments like that, you think, I like actors. I like this job. I like being in a rehearsal room. I like talking to them. I like hearing them saying my lines. I'm kind of working out what I wanted to do. And, and at this point, I had worked on quizzes and, and children's magazine shows and all sorts of things. And this is very clearly me going, yes, this is it. This is it. I love it. Well, when it comes to show running and producing, you have a hand in every aspect of a, of a show's production, um, or at least a, a final say on, on certain things. Yeah. Uh, did you seek out the chance to, to run a show and produce it, or was it sort of handed to you? I kind of always was. The more I wrote, it, it particularly happened when I started working with Nicholas Schindler at Red Productions, and, and it's the first time I went properly freelance as, a, as an independent, and... Um, and with Queer as Folk in 1999. And that's Nicola's way of working. Before anyone started using the word show running, um, uh, she was well into having, you know, we'll make you, I think I was called co-producer at the time or something on the credits of that. But that was, she. she she's writer-led. She loves writers, Nicola. And I've worked with, this is 21 years later and I'm still working with her. I love her. And um, I'm not in love with her, but I love her. <laughs> and... She'd be very glad to hear, and her children would be glad to hear. Um, <laughs> and alarmed, I think. Um, so she was always behind that, and then and then that coincided with the role of showrunner rising up through the ranks. And when it came to Doctor Who, when they approached me for Doctor Who, Jane Tranter's approach was, and you will be the showrunner. It was the first... I'm not saying I was the first showrunner in Britain, but it was, it was kind of the first time... Well... Yeah, I mean, it was the first yeah. time sort of British TV was kind of like... It, I think you talked about this before, like uh, sort of looking to shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the American model of running yes. the show in that way. Yes, uh, yes, and, yes. And the work that uh, you know, Joss Whedon and, and co. had done on Buffy and Angel is sort of that framework. Yeah. Um, and especially on a show that, that needs that kind of coherence. It's like, you know, there have been 13 episodes of Bergerac <laughs> before that. But actually, <laughs> you know, at the beginning, someone says, right, it's set in Jersey. And then someone says, let's bring back... Um, 
fill up a veil halfway through a series. You know, remember that jewel thief, Lisa, Lisa Goddard. And um, that's about it, really. That's what, you know, most shows actually don't need a showrunner in that sense. If it was a crime show, whatever, it's set in Manchester, it's set in London, that's it. Give us individual scripts. Um, I mean, they bet shows like that do benefit now from, from showrunners. You look at what Jed McCure does, it's glorious work. So um, it was the rise of that, and, and I'm all for it. And I think the crucial thing to say is because I could do it. I mean, an awful lot of writers are nuts and shouldn't be allowed anywhere on set. Oh, my God. Like, because writers are, it's a funny thing, writers are born to go and live in an attic. And the difference between American writers and British writers is that in America, it's an industry. It's like a proper job. It's the difference full stop with work in America. People are more proud to work in shops, I think. Their work ethic is to be proud of what they're doing. And, and... And, it, and here, it's much more inclined to say, I'm a writer, I want to go lock myself away. It's amazing in my lifetime how the the job of writer has changed. It, there used to be people who locked themselves away. And now you kind of have to step forward. It's it's even just because, and I mean, on every show, even simply because of the amount of behind-the-scenes material, the amount of output of the interviews that, that's needed, the writer has to step forward. It doesn't have to, but it's actually an easier life for everyone. And it's fierce out there. It's if you, actually, if you want your show to be represented properly, if you have to go on Digital Spy and speak some nonsense about it, then they'll talk about it anyway. So you should be there, I think, because then you'll get it talked about properly. When it comes to the, the sort of the different projects you've tackled over the years, you know, you'd say like something versus, you know, uh, uh, like Running Doctor Who, for example, versus like The Second Coming. Mm. Um, at what point in the initial flames of an idea do you go... This should be this long, and this is longer, and this. Oh, like, where, where do you decide the mini series versus the season? Kind of the very first second you think of it. To be honest, um, mm. it's not something. It's not something I've ever wrestled over. Um, sometimes, you get, I mean, just, just speaking yes. for myself, I would have watched twenty episodes of Casanova, but that's just me. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Actually, yeah. Do you know what I was thinking? Actually, if you made the second coming now. That's at least three seasons on Netflix. Actually, it, it, it would be well, glorious. the Netflix the Netflix model would give you two seasons and maybe a third if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the exactly. way of the, and the way of it. Automatically scroll onto Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom! Um, hello again. Hello. Bless you. <laughs> Play. <laughs> so yeah, it's but it's like it's it's. That's it. I think when I first thought of this, it's a sin that I got coming out next year. I think that was six hours. Channel Four didn't have enough money, so that becomes five hours. That's easy. Turning six into five is easy. But with something like yeah, I just it's the second I think of it. I mean, I think I think it was something the second coming. It was three hours, so there was a debate as to did they want two nineties or three. What was it in the end? Was it four hours? What was it? I can't uh, remember what it was. Hang on. Hang on, is, there? Hang on. is it still for sale? Hang on. I re, I re, it is on DVD. I re, I revisited some of it earlier this week because I oh, wanted to. Uh, show, I had it, it on my brain and I was like, stick it on. Isn't um, it good? Bum, bum. Is it two nineties? It is. It is. Oh, it doesn't have the runtime on the back. Of course, mm. it even doesn't. Oh, oh no, yes, it does. Yeah. Uh, just over two hours total. One hundred forty-five. Two and a half hours. Oh, finish. but that's because it was on ITV. So what's that? Three mm. hours. Three yeah, hours. Yeah, them lovely ad breaks. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. I bloody love that one. I that's I think uh, that scene where the pub blows up. That's great, isn't it? And they'll survive <laughs> to, it. Yeah. Wow. To deviate slightly, I think this was my first my first memory of of seeing any of your work. Actually, second coming was because oh. uh, I was uh, I, I was uh, sort of 
too young for queer as folk, but was aware of it because you could not not know about it in the public consciousness <laughs> in the late nineties, early two thousands. Like it was, <laughs> it it was an event, and even to a kid, like you didn't know what it was, but you knew it was good, and everybody yeah. was enjoying it, and everyone looked really happy on the billboards. So like that was that was like my con- conscious awareness. Second coming was sort of uh, where I became aware of your stuff, and then obviously um, Casanova actually then was the next one that I really oh, dug my, my fangs oh, into. Uh, and then of course uh, this show called Doctor Who which we've talked about and mentioned yeah. but um, and I don't think either of us are particularly fond of it or familiar with it at all but um, <laughs> because of uh, Doctor Who now I, I there's some questions coming up about this show in particular so I'm going to save oh we're doing questions aren't we I've forgotten that yes oh yes oh yes uh, don't worry none of them are asking for pins or anything like that um, which is a shame because <laughs> you know it would be interesting to see how a guest would handle that oh I thought um, you meant a voodoo doll you mean numbers <laughs> Can you please send me some hair? Uh, the no doll reason. I can do. <laughs> um, uh, out of uh, Doctor Who, span the Sarah Jane Adventures. Yes. Um, which uh, we'll get into the creations of during the questions. Spoiler alert there for the end. But um, that was, uh, I mean, that again, like Queerest Folk, Sarah Jane, when it first launched, was a bit of an event. It kind of invaded mm. the public consciousness on its launch because Doctor Who was like at its... Wow. I guess kind of mod. It was it was at its modern apex. It was at its Imperial modern imperial like, phase. I think yeah. here it is. Yeah, it, 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 it's it was the it was the Dalek mania of the two thousands. Didn't we have them? Sort of, oh, didn't we have like a Doctor Who Christmas story and Torchwood started and Sarah Jane was on New Year's Day? It was mad, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. It was sort of two thousand seven was where everything exploded and everything was, was running nuts, alongside each other. Yeah, so yeah. Sarah Jane was another. It was another decoration on that Christmas tree. Um, so even me, who was not watching kids TV, uh, Touchwood, not looking at any of it, Your Honor, I'm a teenager and I'm cool now, absolutely <laughs> came back to check out Sarah Jane Adventures. Oh, I did you? That's see interesting. This. That's I, I want to, yeah, yeah, I was, well, That's the why it was, yeah, it's 2007, wasn't it? The first one, first of January, 2007. Yes. New Year's Day. Yes, so yes, yes. I God, was, we were, f- we were so fast to build that empire, weren't we? I look back, that's what that's what amazes me. I look back and I think, well, you know, we did two or three years of Doctor Who, then we launched Torchwood, then we did two or three years more, and then we launched Sarah Jane. And it's like, no, it was every year. Every juggled year, the same time. Juggled yeah. the same time. Plus behind the scenes stuff, plus writing for the magazine, plus totally animated Doctor specials, Who. plus totally, totally Doctor, Doctor Who, Who. I which I do want to ask about. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, Oh, don't, do you I, know I was very... we were we were right though because we said let's make hay while the sun shines let's do this while we can let's grab every opportunity and then along came 2008 and then the whole world started collapsing and I think we're still in the collapse from 2008 now yeah. we're still seeing the results of that with insane presidents and insane prime ministers and it's all coming from there so just just in 2005 2006 2007 just when the money was there we did it how lucky oh, the, sa- the salad days um, <laughs> they were but it goes to show like the, the uh, in the reach of that popularity that this this and I'm going to use a term which makes my skin crawl because it's always used in this way that, that, that little kid show over there like was suddenly grabbing everyone's <gasps> attention yes um but I was very grateful for that at the time because as somebody who was getting into drama I was aware of the power of of media and 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 yeah. drama and storytelling aimed at young audiences I appreciated a lot children's theater was my favorite unit when I was studying like I, I just adored like knowing that audience and respecting mm. that audience and finding yeah. the right angle in um, so it was so refreshing when Sarah Jane blew up because it knew that audience inside yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that being said, you're balancing two shows at the same time that are aimed at a family audience mm. with a, a slight difference in its aim. Um, 
how do you at that time how do you separate a doctor who story from a Sarah Jane adventure story. Yeah, kind, kind of very easily. Again, again, it's just using a different tone of voice, using a sort of um, five o'clock tea time tone of voice instead of a seven o'clock tea time tone of voice, because at seven o'clock I start swearing like crazy. Um, but it was, I mean, there were very simple rules. of. Uh, there were rules that we wouldn't, we'd be very careful with death on Sarah Jane, which is tricky in a show that's, that's blowing things up and chasing monsters. Very careful with death. Obviously no blood. There was no blood on Doctor Who, but... Um, there was um, also a rule, kind of a rule that we wouldn't go to alien planets. This used to make Phil Ford was the lead writer on um, on um, Sarah Jane, which made him hoot with her. Because eventually, I came to write one. I, I wrote the Death of the Doctor, which went to alien planets and blew people up. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the rules? I was going. The rules are mine. <laughs> he can regenerate a million times. Yeah, Shut yeah, up, everybody! <laughs> I'm just doing what I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, you can see me having fun there, just blowing things up, um, blowing up the rules. But um, yeah, and it's it, it's 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 it's. I mean, it, it decides itself. It's from Sarah Jane. She's not. She's not. She's not going to pick up a gun and shoot people. And equally, she's not. She's not. There's no TARDIS. You're not going to travel as much. So it's more like the stories come to your doorstep, and then you start to in, introduce. You know, Maria arrives. Then later on, it's Rani. So once the neighbours are involved, once the neighbours involved, we always talked about the neighbours' houses being like the Meekers in Rent a Ghost. You know, the people yeah. who were always slightly suspicious something was going on, uh, which we never sustained for long because we liked the lead actors that we cast as the neighbours so much, like like Joe Joe Wilson and Mina Anwar and Ash, um, that we. We'd start writing them into the show, but nonetheless, that was the format of funny neighbours living next door to an alien hunter, never seeing the aliens. Um, so that you know, it had comedy built into its core. It had what it had that invented family built into core. I mean, you are talking about Doctor Who as well there at the same time, but more specifically, it's kind of kids who are finding a home outside their home. So that that kind of warmth and friendliness, the the gang show feel to it, just naturally then starts to describe the stories. And and it was tough. I remember. Matt Jones, once the writer Matt Jones, uh, once pitching a sort of Cyberman invasion um, of Bannerman Road. And you sat there going, but the Cybermen take people's bodies and cut their brains out. You can't. I, was, I, really, yeah. I really felt that with all my heart. <laughs> and, and how much I would have loved to see um, Clyde and Rani running away from, from, uh, from, from the Cybermen. But I said, they're so vile at heart, what the Cybermen do. You can't put that into Bannerman Road. It's got to be softer, actually. It's, got, it's a little bit softer than Doctor Who. Just as a judgment call. In the end, it was normally my judgment or Phil Ford's. And that's what we have to rely on. Everything you make is a series of judgment calls. And yeah, that seemed to work. I guess that adds to the impact of uh, the the crossover in uh, series four of Doctor Who, where where Sarah yeah. Jane and Luke and and you know the Attic and Mister Smith very prominently appear in an episode of of the evening show, suddenly hooking yeah. a whole bunch of other people who hadn't bothered to check it out yet. They're like, what what's that about? Absolutely. And then they go and check it out, <laughs> and suddenly the severity of that situation, the weight of it, of no, these these bad guys will kill. Everyone. Yeah, I wish they'd all been in it. I wish Clyde had been in it. I would be running out. We're not running out of money, but the budget was. I was a cast of five thousand in that thing. So it was like sadly, there's a phone call from Clyde saying that he's trapped in his house. And I, I wish they'd all been in it. I wish that you know. Oh my god, if we'd made them all just a little bit longer, you could have had the Bannerman Road gang out on that street fighting Daleks. Then they would have done it under the Doctor Who banner. That would have been magnificent. Ah, oh, what a shame. Well, that speaks to the excellent casting and a lot of the stuff you, you've worked on as well. Because uh, when I was a kid, I knew that the the characters I connected with more, especially in the dramas and the genre stuff, were always the ones who were a bit 
older than me the older brothers Ugh. the older sister models the people yeah. who i could see myself being like or wanting to be like um was was that the the thought process behind like the, the gang on bannerman road for example yeah, was it yeah, very yeah. much like we we want someone that the, our audience will aspire to be oh and we pushed them as well it's like in case you put them out of questions about sarah jane coming up but in case i don't get to say it my favorite thing i ever made in cardiff is a sarah jane adventure the one called the curse of clyde langer and I, think I love the Curse of Clyde Lang. Magnificent yeah. that story. It's like, and mm. Phil Ford wrote that. I'm sure he won't mind by saying that is my story. I came up with that story, scene for scene, and I think it's utterly, utterly. And talk about dark. I mean, yeah. that's as dark as all hell. And there's a scene in there where his mum throws him out of home. That mm. I think you know we've done people, we've had companions dying with a heartbreak on beaches. We've done all sorts of extraordinary stuff in all of those shows, but to have a scene in a children's drama where a mother says she doesn't love her son and throws him out, knowing that somewhere in the audience there are children that that's happened to, yeah. was a privilege actually to to make that story, and um, I'm gutted that that story never won any awards or anything. It was nominated, but. Oh, it was streets ahead of anything else that was being shown at the time. It's really, really remarkable piece of storytelling. And it stuck to its idea. It didn't chicken out either. It, it really, really followed it through. And it was hard. It's a properly mm. tough story with a happy ending, of course. That's why we're there. Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm so proud of that. When they did some Sarah Jane repeats recently, they were going to... Uh, the third repeat was some other story. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'd say to BBC, BBC, please show The Curse of Clyde Langer again, because that's... Mm. Our highlight is the apotheosis of everything we set out to do. Love it. And like you say, it's it, like with old, old Jack's boat, it's something that does happen and children will see or experience yeah. in their life. And it, it, exactly. it's important to see how, uh, and you know, I say this as you can see on, on FaceTime in a room full of people in capes and wearing their underpants on their uh, outside their trousers. It's yeah, important they're not models, to they're not toys. They're really, oh no, <laughs> they're, they're very wow. quiet, everyone. They don't say, Hot. they don't say a word. <laughs> But like it, it's important to see to see your heroes, to see these these characters live through hard times and 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 watch them, you know, yes. overcome obstacles and uh, and and stay strong. Um, do you feel the weight of that when you're sort of approaching a story for aimed oh. at a kids' audience of of like, wow, we we um, might be the safety net or the the imaginary best friend to a child who really needs this right now yeah 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 i don't feel the weight of it i kind of feel the joy of that i think i think we are it is yes to some people it'll be their favorite show i think you have to remember that whatever you're making it doesn't matter what everyone says about it online someone somewhere it's their favorite show and we kind of knew that was Sarah Jane. it was so good we knew it was, it was their favorite show and um uh, you're right actually it is a responsibility yes it makes you work very hard the whole um I look back on that whole Doctor Who Empire time, that old Cardiff time of making all those shows, and and the pressure of being such a success was enormous, was enormous. And you know, it's you don't sit around going, "Ha ha ha, aren't we marvelous?" You don't have a second spare to do that because you've got to stay that good. Once people like it that much, oh my God, you can't let them down. And yet you've still got to keep experimenting. You can't just you know you can do a Dalek invasion and a Cyberman invasion every week, but you've still got to. You've still got to stretch it for the clever kids and the quiet kids. You've still got to do a love of monsters. You've still got to do the curse of Clyde Langer. You've got to stretch their brains, but and then introduce another Dalek invasion. Um, so it's simply, and this is just me, this is the entire team. We knew we were working on a success. 
and I haven't really been in that situation before or since, <laughs> believe it or not. But not really, not, not that sort That'll come along once in a lifetime. That sort of success on the cover of everything, 13 million viewers, Christmas Day, madness. But it's, it's a ferocious engine that they really, really, really made everyone slaves to the jobs. We were nuts, but you felt like you were being paid back. So um, it worked. It was the Avengers of British television before. Well, it wasn't well. it. Well, I, 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 I put that on the poster. You can, you know, I'm sure I'm not the first person to compare it, but it's true. It was, <laughs> it was a big interconnected world that, like, mum and dad and the kids could watch together, and then mum and dad could watch this bit at night on BBC Three, yeah, and the kids yeah, would watch yeah. this bit on CBBC, and and you know they 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 would merge, and uh, and I again, know, like just the the casting is a big part of the appeal in all of the shows but especially Sarah Jane Adventures like I've 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 been quite fortunate to like stay friends with some of the cast having like oh, worked I mean, events with them and stuff and one of my favorite guests we've ever had at CBBC to the point where we got him in as a guest presenter to fill in for a few days when someone else was ill was Danny Anthony because oh, he, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. he just got the sense of humor of that world like Come on in, Daddy. He's like, oh, is there a? Sa- I remember him saying, "Is there a Sarah Jane event or something?" We went, "No, we just, we just want you in." <laughs> just like it, 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 an episode is showing during the stuff we're pre-recording for, so we'll make a joke about it. But we want you in. <laughs> so just come all on of in. Them. All of them, though. Um, Bless uh, Ange and Tommy, Tommy. like they wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, w- using Sarah Jane Adventures as an example with the characters you guys created, and you know the, the gang of Adam and Road. Uh, what's it like seeing that? come to life in this sort of this world this context seeing like the the page go from the written word to a human being who is wonderful bringing oh, it right. to life right i mean yeah i mean the human beings are marvelous because you know they're, they're great actors everything you ever create is always a slight disappointment when you see it <laughs> everything i mean everything everything ever it's perfect in your head this is natural it's like I've, I've, seen it, your, I've seen it said before i think it's neil gaiman said there's a version in your heart there's a version on the page and then there's the version uh, yes. that's on camera half of your job in life is saving something it's, it's just saving it <laughs> right that doesn't quite work we put some music on uh, that's not quite well we've got enough money uh right put a line in it's we're saving <laughs> saving saving it makes you very inventive it makes you able to you know, tap dance on the spot like a madman and um and you know, truly where, where you don't save and where you are lucky is the actors they're the ones who understand it's easy to write this stuff and um we were so lucky and so lucky with our casting director as well andy Pryor, just to get those people in um for not there's such phenomenal talent out there it's it's a joy it's um, it's it's part of the job that's almost never spoken about writers working with actors because it's there's just a bit of magic in there you hope and there normally is and um, and it's almost so delicate you don't ever talk about it but it happens but uh, but most of, but the rest of the time um, you know we were writing great big Avengers size blockbusters there we really were they were massive those shows and and we were nuts and we just did which Doctor Who was always done. It's always been one of the great virtues of Doctor Who. I was watching The Mutants the other night. I thought, let me, I was wondering about Britbox. Let's have a look at The Mutants. And there's a cliffhanger <laughs> where the wall of the space station blows open and the chieftain is pulled out into space and Joe Grant is hanging on. And it's so badly shot. But it's so brilliant because we all know watching it what's supposed to be happening. And, and it's not badly shot. It's shot for the best they could possibly do given the tuppence that they had. And and that's the show that I grew up loving. No part of me as a child watched that and went, oh, I'm going to stop watching now. That's daft. So it, it's always been a program that survived um, it, 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 despite the, the shortcomings. Well, because of the shortcomings. Happy days. 
the I was going to say the cherry on top of the cake, but no, she, she was the whole cake. Of course, of the show was Liz Sladen, like to carry well, a, a yes. kids show uh, and be the lead and to be like, as far as commissioners and everything go, an unconventional lead for a children's show. Like she's not a yeah. schoolgirl. She's no, not she's a, a superhero. Yeah. She oh, yeah, she yeah. was a superhero. And and you know, it, it, it's school reunion. Was that sort of like a in Doctor Who? Was that sort of like a taster for maybe? Well, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was. It, I mean, it all grew naturally out of school reunion because mm. uh, I wanted to do that because I just loved her and and and. And I knew she was still around and still, and, and, and thank God we contacted her. She wanted to do it. And so during school reunion, as the rushes started to come in, actually, I didn't have to read through. Everyone just adored her. And when you heard that voice saying dialogues and come on, doctor, you just, the, the whole room went, wow, like that. Um, it was amazing. And, um, so I knew instantly that I worked. And then the rushes started coming in. So my immediate thought was, we're not going to get rid of her. Every year we'll have a Sarah Jane adventure in Doctor Who. Yeah. That was my initial plan. Every year the Doctor will come home. Because, you know, she walks off with K-9 in the end. And I thought, well, obviously she's heading back to her, some sort of attic where she will discover that someone's trying to invade and she'll have a little space-time telegraph. And she'll be, and I thought, well, great, we do that. We have a Sarah Jane adventure every year. And on her last day, when she'd finished, when she'd wrapped, lovely Liz, I went to her hotel room the next morning uh, to say thank you, she was about to catch a train, and she had this room full of flowers. There were flowers and Tom Baker and stuff like that. People, it was a really extraordinary time to be shooting with her. We all knew how magical it was. I mean, a little cup of tea sitting there. I said, "Will you come back every year? Can we do this?" And, oh, I'm delighted! She said, "Little no." So that was kind of set up, and then oh, I don't know. A month later, Children's ITV came knocking, saying, or rather, Julie. Gardner came to me saying, "Could you bear to make a third show?" As we were, <laughs> as we were tearing our hair out making two shows at once. Could you bear to make a third one? And but it was for CBBC. I don't think if anyone else had, had said it, um, but but instantly I was like, "Yes," because having worked for CBBC and having loved CBBC and believing with all my heart how important that stuff is, it was like an instant yes. And their first pitch was like a young doctor on Gallifrey. I was like, oh, not in a million years. No, I can imagine. Oh, my no, God. No, no, no. Mm. Hey, come on. Come on, Master. I wonder what this Matrix does. <laughs> imagine. Oh, Ronnie, you're so naughty. I think you're going to be a bad girl. <laughs> be so terrible. Let's call it TARDIS. <laughs> Because the Latin for late is tired. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, absolutely the not. The only, way, the only way it would have been worth it is if you had somehow gotten a child to behave like William Hartnell. <laughs> oh, my God. And you think that's how it would work. You see how dark a pit this is. <laughs> but, so anyway, but I was all for it. And, and also, I did love K-9. I, 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 was, I'm, I could think K-9 is the most magical invention. So I just thought, well, Sarah Jane and K-9 and put some kids in it. And, and initially, we called it Sarah and K-9, and then we couldn't get the rights to K-9 uh, properly. Um, and It was like the Spider-Man to- of your Avengers. He dipped in from time to time when given permission. <laughs> That's true. Oh my god, it's all <laughs> happening again, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so I, I imagine the first script and, and everything—the initial isn't pitch it a didn't shame feature. Spider-Man. Now I was thinking the other day about how much Trump and all the Jeff Bezoses have, have conquered the world, and actually, even Spider-Man is tutored and taught by Tony Stark. 
I think they've ruined Spider-Man by doing that. Ruined it. Because you try and try... I was thinking, trying to find a little corner of that Marvel Universe that's free of the oligarchs and despots. Because they're millionaires. Yeah. The millionaires are in charge of that world. Everything that's wrong in society is reflected in Marvel movies. And I love Marvel movies, but the one character is always free of that was Spider-Man and they've made sure that he's in the grasp of the millionaires. Well, you know, it, it, their excuse would have been... Um, Uncle Ben, we're not doing the origin story again. We need an Uncle Ben surrogate. And it's like, yeah, you don't yeah, need yeah. an Uncle Ben surrogate when he repeats Uncle Ben's words to himself daily <laughs> to remind himself who he is and what, yes. with great power, comes great responsibility. You don't need someone oh, over his shoulder saying, you know, if, if, you know if, you, if you need the suit, then you shouldn't have the suit. I'm taking it back now. Technology. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but putting Robert Downey Jr. in that first one probably made them a billion dollars. So I think they're laughing at us on their gold yachts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Where were we? How did we get to that? How did we get to that? So, something about Spider-Man. Um, so the show carries on for, um, n- you know, near five full seasons. And unfortunately, we lost those yeah. back in um, 2011. And yeah. and it, it, it outside of the actual sadness of losing a friend, and a colleague and, and and a part of the family, you then have to, as and this is where the producer side comes in, turn around to an entire team making this program, which was yes. scheduled to, if correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you, you were filming season four and half of five, taking a break, and then half of five and a sixth was the plan. Uh, oh, no, I think, I think, because what we're also leaving at, because there's a danger sometimes we talk about this golden age. It's always mm. tough making television programs, and money is never free, and there was never enough money on Sarah Jane. And it's, it's ah. actually quite crucial to say that um, the first series, certainly the pilot in the first series, was partly funded by BBC Drama. Mm. Um which, and it needs, it's an expensive show, even though it was significantly cheaper than Doctor Who, the expensive show. When it, I mean, look at that pilot, it's nicely expensive. That explosion at the factory at the end, I think is one of the biggest explosions we ever did. Um, until, until the next time, Miss Smith. And um, <laughs> until we meet again, or whatever it is. Um, so it was always short of money. I think, was it going to season two? Drama couldn't repeat that. You're hitting a period. Are you hitting like 2008 now where financial crisis yeah. come along? And, yes, and it, Series might, 2 Productions 2008. People might wonder why financial... People often ask me why financial crisis affects the BBC when the BBC has a fixed licence fee. And what people don't realise is that almost every show on the BBC is a co-production because the licence fee isn't enough to make to make dramas and to make sure that everything has money from worldwide, from usually from America, usually from... Uh, sometimes from Europe, but um, Canada. Canada supported a lot of Doctor Who in its first three, four years. Um, so that's the knock-on effect of the worldwide recession was that money started to get short everywhere, from everywhere. If it wasn't on Sarah Jane, Children's BBC needed that money elsewhere. So, I mean, Nikki Wilson it was the best producer. She was so good. We used to... We had to cut it down. We only had five days per episode. We used to have a bit more leeway. We used to have more like 11-day fortnights per per story. That became five days per episode, which is tough. Look at those mm. stories. Look how mm. busy they are. Look how designed they are. Look how many effects there are. Five days per episode. That's really, really hard. So the money was always shrinking. Because the money was shrinking, we did, what was it, series four and half of five? Or was it series yeah. three, half of five? That was, like a, that was like a desperate money grab of like, this money's only available now. So you ah. can make an extra half a series now or not at all. And right, so, so it coming, was like a trun- truncating it all together. It like, to the second coming cost. back, had we come back, we would only have made one half, the second half of Series 5. We wouldn't have made ah, half of that. Because the money, you were just 
Yes, and at the same time, we're hitting the years now where I was moving to America. We lost Jane Tranter, who was the great champion of all this. She was the, by this stage, she was called the controller of fiction of the BBC, that marvellous Doctor <laughs> Who title that she had. But, you know... Friends uh, with the uh, celestial toy maker. Exactly. So once people move on, you lose support, you lose, you know, whoever comes into the job has got their own things they want to support. It's very, it's always very unlikely they want to support. So suddenly... Drama's not as willing to fund the Seven Jane Adventures, or you know, it would be doing great things elsewhere. It's, I'm not I'm not being critical now because this is just how it's, how it's always worked, and um, so money started to run out. And Sarah Jane was always I do think that's why Sarah Jane didn't win many awards and stuff like that. I think juries would sit there and think, well, they're all right, they're rich. That's a rich show, and it wasn't. It was it was it was it was as penniless as it for example. It wouldn't had nowhere near the budget matching its ambition. So um, so no, we were. I do. I'm absolutely sure enough good people would have sat around to absolutely sure that the Sarah Jane Adventures would have continued. And yet, I've also got to say in the same breath, I wasn't there. Uh, I'd gone. Who knows? I think it would always have been. It would always have been counting its budget. It would always have found it tough to get made. It, it was tough to get it made every single year. That after the first year, after the big infusion of money. And that money built us the attic. It built us the standing set. So that's built us Mr. Smith and stuff. So, um, but that was always right. It's always tough. Always tough. But I think everyone in every pocket of television, and especially in public service broadcasting, would tell you this. I don't want to play the violins of Sarah Jane in particular. But it's worth saying, it's a nice, this is the only chance I've ever had to say that it wasn't just renewed every year. Absolutely oh, not. No, the, you always yeah. it, no, no matter no matter how big a success may seem, either in viewership or, or cultural yeah. reach, there's, there's always a fight. Uh, it, it's very rare that it's a case of oh you can have another series during yes. production of a series like it's part know, of the reason do it again next year. It's why you get these casting disasters. It's it's it, like you know I was immensely sad to lose Maria um, and good old Yasmin. She had other things to go and do, and I saw on stage last year she's a wonderful actor. She's absolutely brilliant, but we couldn't afford to put actors under contract. Every mm. year we had a hope that Mina was free. The old Ace was free as well. Um, that 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 you know, you kind of tell Liz and the leads. But you know, if Danny Anthony had got a job on on Holby City, we'd have lost him. We had no yeah. contracts for them, and that that was every year. That was tough. I think that was, was that the same on Torchwood as well. I think it was. But it was certainly true on uh, that. Wouldn't be true on Doctor Who because that's got a bigger budget, so you can tie people into long term contracts. Uh, but on Sarah Jane, there were no long-term contracts whatsoever. It was a miracle everyone came back every year. Well, in terms of the uh, the crew and the talent behind the camera, a lot of them uh, did come back to work on the successor to Sarah Jane Adventures in terms of the eventual... Wizards vs. Aliens, yeah. Department, Wizards vs. Aliens, uh, which yeah, brings me to my, my second scathing personal question. Why have they only released Series 1 on Region 2 DVD? I'm fuming about that. Because those things don't sell anymore. You're lucky to have one. It's like are you, people like you, Chris, and I'm talking to you in a room full of toys and ephemera yeah. and trivia. <laughs> people like you love your DVDs and you love your Blu-rays. They're not selling. Their days are coming to an end. When did anyone last do a commentary on a DVD? They don't sell. That's very true. That always stinks. I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big believer in physical media because I'm old school. I like the idea of oh, going, what it. shall I watch? What shall I watch? In, a in, my, in my day, we had two commentaries on every single episode of Doctor Who. Two commentaries. There was an online one, and then there's the one on the DVD, and that's gone because everyone, everyone thinks commentaries are free. And I mean, personally, I do it for free. I always did it for free. I don't think you have to pay the actors, but even just 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 transferring it onto the disc costs a couple of thousand pounds. That couple of thousand pounds doesn't exist anymore. So I kind of you, I get that question more and more. Why is it on Blu-ray? Why is it on Blu-ray? Because you're the one person in Britain who buy it. Is the answer? Sadly, it's sad because we're left with streaming now, which is not 
quite the same and yeah but hey, on the plus side it does mean like recently as, we, as we're recording this it did wizards did pop back up all three seasons on iPlayer, and also, so. oh yeah 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 and also yeah. well actually i say that about streaming but actually i've only just got britbox and it's fascinating so it's so the first time in 25 years or so i'm watching doctor who without dvd commentaries and I realised what an idiot I was listening to those commentaries for all those years. I, that's why I was watching The Mutants the other night. I'm watching things from scratch like I haven't seen them for most of my adult life instead of some costume designer going there and we ironed the shirt and hung it up afterwards and washed it. And, <laughs> and this, all, is, uh, this, is, this is where we gave Sarah Sutton the day off. So this I'm going to say, so. all commentaries are boring. Stop them. Go and listen to the original thing. Because it's like I haven't listened to the dialogue in these things. For a generation, for decades. And actually, it's really fun. The Mutants is a load of all nonsense, but it rattles along. What a great story. It's really clever. And I have not been listening for a long time. I, I disagree. I don't I don't agree entirely on the commentary thing. Based solely on, on one you did with Katie Manning for Death of the Doctor ah, on the Green the Death Doctor. DVD, because I hadn't heard that in forever. And when we, we've been doing this big Doctor <laughs> Marathon, uh, my wife and I, since... May of 2018, from the beginning, we recently finished the original run. We're about to do, Lord help us, Dimensions in Time, uh, and wow. more than 30 years in the TARDIS, and all the stuff from the 90s. But do you, do you watch the episode and then watch it with the commentary? Uh, we, we've not done it with the commentary, but after certain stories, I've gone, oh, go on, and I'll stick it on for one or two episodes, just out of curiosity while I'm working or editing right. or something. Because and when we got cause... to the Green Death, I went, wait, Death of the Doctor's on here? And there's a commentary? <laughs> hey, go on then, okay. Because oh, um, that's my mistake, because over the years, because life is busy and I've had a job yeah. and I've been busy. So if, you know, The Seeds of Doom came out on DVD, I'd just listen to the commentary and I wouldn't watch it without the commentary. And that's my mistake, actually, not the DVDs. But now I'm back. Hooray. Hope you're enjoying this episode of Out of the Broom Cupboard. Before we carry on, I just wanted to highlight a couple of other excellent shows that I feel you should give a chance and have a little listen to when you can, after you finish listening to this, obviously. You're listening to From Care to Where, with me, Crystal D. I entered the care system as a terrified eight-year-old and left as a confused 18-year-old. During this time, I felt disappointed about the lack of care experience role models for me to look up to for inspiration and hopefulness for my future. That's why I started From Care to Wear, an opportunity to share the positive stories of those who have succeeded despite a difficult start in life. Whether you have experience of the care system or none at all, this is a chance to learn from the voices of care experienced people with the aim of finding ways to improve life before and after care. Welcome to From Care to Wear. From Care to Wear with Crystal D is available on Spotify weekly. Hi, everybody. I'm Molly Marsh, and I'm the host of Galactic Yo-Yo, uh, which is a Doctor Who podcast where I speak to a different person each week about their unpopular Doctor Who opinion. This could be anything from um, a story they feel is underrated. Um, we've had people defend Lover Monsters before, The Rings of Akaten, Fall to Doomsday, Time Lash even. Um, or it could be... Uh, a, a really outrageous out there take about the show in general for instance um doctor who writer rob shearman once told me that he felt the show should have ended when ian and barbara left uh, not everybody's take is that outrageous but many are over the course of the podcasts more than 100 episodes now i've spoken to the likes of crystal d andrew cartmel rob shearman um benjamin cook nicholas briggs 
um, Emma Reeves, James Goss, Una McCormack, uh, and I've got a couple of episodes coming up soon with Rufus Hound and Peter Harness. Uh, both of those conversations were fantastic, and I'm really excited for um, people to hear them. If you want to find the podcast, you can find it on Twitter at twitter.com slash galacticyoyopod. Um, it's on Spotify, Galactic Yo-Yo, iTunes, Galactic Yo-Yo, SoundCloud as well, uh, and a number of other podcasting apps um, that it makes its way to through the RSS feed. Um, I've never done an advert before, can you tell? Um, check me out, check the podcast out. It's a different guest every time, so um, if you don't like it one week, then it'll be someone new the next week, uh, and that's the, that's the joy of it. But yeah, thank you. Uh, check it out if you want to. Wizards had a, uh, a nice, uh, strong three-season run. I personally always felt that it should have been at least one more, and I know that the the, oh, the, thre- yeah? the threads of the story were being set up for year four uh, oh, in terms God, of new yes. characters and characters one more year. leaving. Ten and- more years. Yeah, well, I mean, if if I had my way, Russell, we'd we'd be on to season whatever it would be by now. Great with, show yeah. that that again that fell into neglect. Staff changes, new people came into uh, came into. I did sit there thinking if that had been a girl wizard, we'd probably still be on air. And um, just because changes of staff at, at CBBC, and um, yeah, I remember going to a meeting. It's, and I was in LA at the time, but I'd fly over now and again. I go to meetings, and I went to a meeting in Media City to talk about Wizards versus Aliens Christmas special. And the, ah. meeting was about, uh, the, the meeting was about an hour long and we never discussed the Christmas special. Oh, and I came into that okay. going, I came into that going, that's kind of a death knell, isn't it? And this Christmas special was so good. I can't begin to tell you. I would have written that. Oh my God. It was, oh my God, it was good. Um, the dreaded words came around of it's being rested, which yeah, is in I, modern I, terms is basically, <laughs> look, we can't afford it or we want to put something else in its place for now or look, we're probably not going to get around to this again. And it's again. not just, I don't want to blame CBBC who've been wonderful to me. It's like all the, the support wasn't necessarily there in Cardiff. Bosses have changed. They're coming with different... Yeah. Suddenly, that children's spin-off isn't the most important thing. I completely disagree, because what do you want to fill your studios with? But, um, you know, if there's just... A, but then why should you be as excited? Maybe there were bosses who just weren't as excited by Wizards versus Aliens as they were by their own ideas. And that's allowed. That's the way it works. So these things... And again, I wasn't in the country. I do feel... Not bad about that, but I actually I would have kicked up more fuss. I would have kicked more people and got things done. Had I actually I was, you know, I was back in the country at this time. My husband was very ill, so I was just sort of kind of on a back seat. That's why I was going to some meetings, but I wasn't there full time. And I was having to. You walk out of meetings like that. Actually, you walk out of meetings like that, washing your hands of it, because that was kind of that. That's that's no way for anyone on that show to be treated. So um, genuinely, I was like, no, that's it. Bye bye. Do you find it well when it comes to a project ending for whatever reason, um, and it's something that you you feel like there's there's more story to tell here? Is it is it hard to handle, or or is it just part of the part oh, of the it's, business? It's part of it to be honest. It's hard to say because I wasn't hands on writing Wizards versus Aliens every day. I would have mm. felt much more gutted. I'm sure Phil Ford did. It was part of it. Um, um, so I did. And I, life was kind of taking me very busy and my personal life at the time, so it wasn't the highest thing on my list. And yet it was. I love I love Scott. I, I love Scott Harron, the lead actor. And of course, Annette Badland, Michael, all those people. Um, yeah, you know, fantastic people. So I was immensely sad for them. Um, 
but who just kind of resolved to work with them all one day somehow or something. Um, but yes, there are untold stories. I, I'm because I was kind of more concerned with my home life for the time. It came back onto children's onto the iPlayer recently, and um, I'm astonished how good it is. I mean, that is a storytelling team absolutely at the height of their powers. From Sarah Jane, a lot of people from Doctor Who, the the beats that the stories hit, I, I literally sat watching and going, my God, we know what we're doing. And most shows don't know what they're doing. <laughs> most of my shows, most of them, you know, most shows are brand new and therefore don't know what they're doing and all get fixed with hindsight. But on that, you think, God, the levers of the stories are clicking into place. It stays true to its premise, which is magic versus science, magic versus science, all the way through, magic versus science in every conversation. And Randall Moon, Dan Starkey's Randall Moon. It's a really, really magical show. I'm, I'm even, I loved it. And having seen it again now, I'm even more impressed by it. I thought I'd watch one episode and I sat there and watched, watched about 10. I loved it. So yeah, one of my, it's very sad. One of, one of my favourite uh, Wizards-related um, memories isn't even in the show. I, I, I was fortunate enough to shoot two behind-the-scenes um, oh, series yeah. on it. I think oh, I, I think we did one for each, but two of them were a bit more in-depth. And uh, for one of them, we just stood there in the... The, the 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 main sort of the main hub of the the the, the Necros ship just looking oh, around and we're we're, we're yes. kind of finding a moment to to like we need a moment just to get a shot here or you know because when you're behind the scenes crew you don't want to interrupt or get in the yeah, way yeah, yeah. You, you're very grateful to be given the chance to go in but you also know that like you are a fly <laughs> <laughs> not like yeah, sort of yeah, buzzing yeah. around so you have to be very very respectful and suddenly uh, <laughs> lovely Tom Bell runs over to us in full Jaffro oh, thirteen yeah, yeah, costume yeah. bar the top part of his spiky red head oh wow uh, and he just runs over and he says. I've got 10 minutes now if you want to shoot anything. We went, oh, I mean, do you, I mean, do you want to just improv something? He went, yeah, I'll go get me ears and just run off to find, find whichever operator had the top part of his costume. And it's just, that was one of those moments, like oh, you said earlier, we just sort of look at it and you go, I love what we're doing. <laughs> this is so strange. This also, is such a weird you know, career. I think best designed aliens ever, the Necrons. Oh, they're they great. Are, they're stunning. They're, and you watch that show, you, you said they've got this Gwendolyn Christie as the most stunningly designed alien. There she is, like this amazing, fantastic woman. She 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 falls in love with the lead character. She has this child. The child dies, metaphorically, and then gets given a happy ending when she's made human again. It's a really, really extraordinary piece of work. I loved it. Yeah. The, the series one and two arc is so beautifully constructed, and, and I think that's why, as a fan of it, I'm, I mourn that series four we didn't get, because you can see yeah. the seeds being sown at the end of series three for the future of it. Um, but I'm still, very, like you said, I'm just grateful it happened. I'm grateful yes. with, with, any, so with anything you enjoy or enjoy working on. Um, I want to ask one more question before we get into our Q&A from our lovely patrons. Um, and it's about Totally Doctor Who. Yes. So uh, were All you right. there for the first meetings of that? And if so... Why didn't you go, mm, do you know what? I have presenting experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I had time to spare, Chris. <laughs> I didn't have time to eat. Although, no, I only had time to, I didn't have time to not eat. <laughs> That's the truth about that. I just it's fine. Around. Just, just, just save on rent and sit on that oh couch. And when Liz shows up, <laughs> just it like was, press record. It, it, it took a bit of work to get there. Totally Doctor Who. It was lovely. Gillen, who did uh, Doctor Who Confidential, one of my dearest friends on all, all those shows. I love Gillen. And I've spoken to her for ages, and I must. Um, she came to us rather shamefaced with the first episode, saying, well, I can play this now. And we sat there, and <laughs> she, it was like executing someone because I used the terrible words. She said, don't say it, don't say it. And then, you've damaged the brand. <laughs> oh, I had to say, it didn't work. It absolutely didn't work. It was, And then Gillen, 
and the team, and then lovely Roz came into working as well. Worked, and the, the people who were there who made the first episode had worked very hard. They worked with tuppence, but I'm sorry, it didn't work at all, and it was terrifyingly off kilter. It's funny because it's like um, I was chatting. Someone said hello to me on Instagram like a couple of years ago, and I was like, I know that name, and it was Thomas Reese K. Who's, oh, lovely oh, Tom. You know him, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah because yeah. he is in the very first episode of Thomas of, of Totally Doctor Who because he's a little kid. I mean, he's a man now. He's a little kid <laughs> making Doctor Who adventures in his garage. And, and the reason why I remembered his name after 15 years, Thomas Rieske, was because that first episode of Totally Doctor Who was so bad. We edited it like 27 <laughs> times until it, until it was any good. And in those days, <laughs> this was also around the time of, of the awful Blue Peter incidents with the Blue Peter cat and people getting sacked for ridiculous reasons and having to ridiculous witch hunts going through the BBC. So as an executive, you had to sign off on every single second that you were transmitting. Yeah. So you couldn't just watch Totally Doctor Who with a slight re-edit and go, yeah, that'll do. You had to watch the entire 25 minutes. So there was Thomas <laughs> Rieske all the time. And now he's, a, he's an adult and says hello and chats to me on Instagram. Funny, isn't it? He, he's but, been in this room. He's been in this very room. Let so, him go, Chris. Let him go. He's a very beautiful boy. I can't let him go. I'm, I'm not allowed. But um, it, was, it was hard work. And I, I'm, I'm not regretting telling that story. I'm sorry if people worked very hard and it didn't work. And also, and, and the truth of it is, I don't think we'd sat down. I think we were, so, we were making three shows and this was the fourth. I know we were making four. We were making Doctor Who Confidential as well, and Torture I'm, Declassified. I, I mean, maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. I was going to say Torture Declassified alongside it. There was then... such high that we took our eye off Totally Doctor Who for a second, and 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 then so suddenly we're being presented with a finished episode, and it just got better. Then it got better. We moved the show into the actual hub of production. Remember, we moved it into the actual studio, so it was in practically part of the scene. Doc decisions like that were made. Lovely, this lovely Barney, all those great people who worked on it. Um, um, and I by the you know it took a while, and by the end we had a great show, a really great show. But that was oh, that was how you've damaged the brand. <laughs> she was literally don't say that, don't use those words. <laughs> She's going, that's the worst thing you could say to me. I was going, you've got to save it, love. Oh dear, sorry. I'd love to see the, uh, the 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 viewing figures for the CBBC channel at that point of or, or BBC One what have you at that point of the week because of oh, course famously success. yeah the last especially yeah. the last five minutes where there'd be a preview of that weekend's upcoming oh, is episode that right? is that what it yeah. would go <laughs> exclusive scene there it is just, they got I'd, me I'd on love, there once. I'd love to watch that and just see it just go, whoop, there's the needle. <laughs> there it is. Like, it's already going up, it's going up. Whoop, last five minutes. A bunch no, of adults at work are putting the telly on and going, I oh, think right, there we go. did well from the very first second. Stop it. It was a very high-rated show. It was great. <laughs> I loved I loved it. It was, hey, like Confidential, it introduced people to behind-the-scenes world of making family entertainment. We Speaking say, of which. We couldn't uh, say the title without laughing, I've got to say. It's like, there we were at 40, 45 years old, walking around and going, totally not too. We're like, <laughs> we could never just say totally Doctor Who. We just go, oh, it's totally Doctor Who. <laughs> Apparently, that was good for young people at the time. I once worked on a show called It's Wicked. That was awful. That was like, people had stopped saying It's Wicked. It, three years before a television show said, let's call ourselves It's Wicked. And we knew it. We go, Please don't call it that. Please. Count your blessings. Today it'd be called Totes Doctor Who. <laughs> yes, it would. Totes Doc. shows. Totes Doc. Totes Doc. Totes Doc. That's not bad. Well, they, well, right. yeah. I've got contact. I don't know if they pick up, but we'll we'll try them. We'll see if doc. they want to take it on board. Doc dot doc. D- dot dot doc. Doc dot doc. Doc dot doc. Uh huh. You all right there? <laughs> Stop me. 
So these shows introduced uh, younger audiences to like the behind the scenes world of making television, which coincidentally yes. he says, segueing smoothly like there jam on were. toast there into uh, say that 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 six plus years of live like TV the didn't witch uh, in the forest of Hansel and Gretel. There you were, <laughs> just breadcrumbed you all in. Um, <laughs> we have some questions from our patrons about uh, writing and producing uh, family entertainment and kids TV. How many pages um, do you have, Chris? Really, tell me the truth. Five. Uh, we have five million. No, no, no. As as of recording, we're in the the late twenties. Johnson. <laughs> no, one one of them has been. My, my wife, when it started, went, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna patron it." And I was like, "Oh, you don't have to." Like, because it's, I mean, it's just going back to. Just, just hand me, just, ha- just hand me a couple of quid now, and I'll put it toward the, <laughs> the, the website and keeping the files online. But uh, at the moment, we we have uh, a twenty strong team of producers who are responsible oh, wow. for the show being housed and uh, the stuff being made and pre the dark times uh, transport for recordings. A twenty um, strong team of producers. Well, I'd be in there with some bunch of cuts. Let me tell you, Jesus <laughs> Christ Almighty! You can manage with three. Sack the rest of them. Keep the money for yourself. You fool. Well, you heard that, folks. But uh, in the meantime, 20. I'll put your questions forward. Twenty <laughs> so, pineapples, extra. Does, does, does this podcast feel like twenty people have worked on it? No, it does not. Now get on with your questions, you lazy boy. Pineapples, Hector asks. Uh, did you? Oh, uh, this will be tying into uh, Wizard specifically. Did you have any difficulties in getting an LGBTQ plus character onto CBBC? And if you did, would you have done anything differently? Absolutely not. I mean, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to come up to me and say. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say Ross T. Davis say you're not doing this gay story. But we we knew they were. We knew that of course they were gay friendly. It wasn't even in question. Had we continued with the Sarah Jane adventures, we'd always toyed with Luke being gay. And then they actually said, "Can you introduce a regular gay character?" And at the same time, Tommy had left the uh, Sarah Jane. But then he emailed me. I was out in LA. And he emailed and said, "Can I come back? I love that show. I miss it. Can I come back?" And I was like, "Oh, brilliant! Yeah. We can do this now. We can have him as a gay character." And then cruel life took us in a different direction so that so i felt thwarted in that sense so it was always going to come out in wizards versus aliens somehow i don't think i don't think i told anyone i was going to do that in in that story it wasn't wasn't particularly planned um but was i was phil ford meant to write that story um no that's death of the doctor no i think i was always going to write uh all out war with an exclamation mark that's its title all out war (laughs) And I just thought, well, I'll do that with Benny in this. And a lovely person, Alaska, was such a sensitive actor, so such a successful man and the stuff he's doing. Um, so, honestly, there was never a phone call. There was never anyone saying, do you have to do it? Never, never, never. You know, it's, I don't mean in telling this story, I sound like the hero of it. And that's not true because you've got commissioners who are so open to this kind of stuff and so happy that it happened and so willing to engage with your stuff like that. So I, I can't I can't even big up my own role in this. It was just entirely natural. No one blinked. Everyone was happy that it happened. Connie Gilmore asks, Hello, Russell. I love how your work's representative and reflects things we all experience in real life. Do you ever find it difficult to inform and educate as well as entertain in your stories? When writing for kids, is it more or less difficult that way? Um, I don't. I, I don't. I honestly, here I am sitting in the room. Where's my keyboard? This is where I sit and write. And I don't. I don't sit here thinking now. I must inform and educate. But it's kind of. I realise over the years it's kind of my natural bent, which, which is the, that is where I will head. It's like I am mouthy and gobby and opinionated. And if I'm writing about something, then I've got something to say about the state of the world. It's like I've, I've got something I'm vaguely planning for ITV in a year or two's time. 
And it's, it's quite a light idea, really. I was thinking, oh, that's quite light. And then I, I just had a little word to myself saying, not by the time you finish writing it. No, <laughs> you will have had to go at everything and everyone <laughs> and they'll all end up in a gunfight in a food bank, frankly. So it's, um, so, um, it's, it's something I do naturally. It's, it's, it's why, you know, sometimes I have to take a deep breath and sort of call myself a political writer, even though it doesn't look like it, but, but I certainly look like a gay writer and that is a political thing. Whether we like it or not, that's a political act. That's who we are. We're used in politics. We're abused in politics. And, um, yeah, so so I don't make those distinctions between the things. I don't think now I'm pushing a message, now I'm telling a story. I just can't help it. A story will start to come out the message and a message will start to come out the story. And that's just the way I am. I'm just an opinionated middle-aged man. I think all good stories and all good writers have something to say because otherwise the work feels hollow. It's, it's just true. I think it's, I think it's very dangerous. I think it's dangerous to start with a theme. I think it's very dangerous to mm. say, now I'm going to write about Europe. Um, you know that, that that's tough. That's hard. But um, yeah, story first. I would yeah, I would say that. I love the idea of uh, it starts out light, and by the end it's horrid. I'm like, oh, so years and years. Russell's going to write this really lovely sitcom <laughs> about a happy family, and nothing terrible or or or, or doom laden happens to the world at all. Exactly. Um, Look at us now. You see, <laughs> Widge, which is their name. I'm not just Widge. like expressing delight, but I do to see them uh, leaving a question. Hi, Russell. My question is, what was your favourite monster or alien to appear on Sarah Jane Adventures, and why? Oh, um, well, I've upstaged that with the Necros, because I think they're the greatest designed creatures. Uh, favourite uh, monster on Sarah Jane Adventures? Um, I'm going through the more like the flicker. There's mad flicker going through my mind. Because, of course, we stole a lot of them. A lot of them. Part of the deal was to save money and, and to nick things from Doctor Who. So we didn't have too many that were just... I love those little... What were they called? Um, um, in The Man Who Never Was. Um, the little, little oh. mad, little tiny things. They were like jars. The little, si- the little Cyclops characters. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. What were they called? Scullions. I'm trying to remember now. Scullions. No, they were scullions. Yes, they were scullions. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Yeah, 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 I loved them. I thought that had we continued with the Sarah Jane Adventures, they'd have got, they have one eye, they've got their hoods, they one eye and a gaping round face. I thought they were perfect <laughs> Sarah Jane monsters in a way. They looked so mad. And also, to get a child Slitheen, I thought that was inspired. That was like, from, from day one on Sarah Jane's night, we'll bring the Slitheen in because they fit Sarah Jane so well. But like day one, I was going, and there's a child. There's a child. Sarah Jane's got children. So we have a child sleeping as well. Jimmy V running around that. The child sleeping made me laugh every time you see it. I just, I adore that. Okay, that's my favourite. It beats the scullions. A child sleeping. Child Slitheen has an action figure. Mine's on, on that shelf back there. Does it? Tiny little child really? Slitheen. Yeah, I'll, wow. I'll, I'll show you at the end of the recording. It's, oh, I don't uh, think I knew yeah. that. Oh, I it's, one, it. it's one of my faves. But um, <laughs> that, another thing I loved about that show is, is it's the Saturday morning cartoon villain um, plots. Because again, like there would be serious threats, there would be serious danger, but there was that element more of these are these bad guys are serious, but a little more boo hiss, a little yes. more like oh, rotten God. buggers. People like yeah. Julie Graham as Ruby White. That's a great villain, Ruby White. Mm. I mean, that's a dark story. Sarah Jane that's yeah. old and replacing her like that. Wonderful. To get Julie Graham, she's in demand on prime, prime, prime TV. And to this day, he always tells me how much he loved working with Liz and being on that show. She's lovely, Julie. Love a recurring baddie. And the Blatherine. Just the, just like, <laughs> oh, we don't want to do the Slitheen again, but we can get the pain we, out. <laughs> we have such a laugh. I know they're called Blatherine. They're a different family. We used to literally sit there. I think the time we laughed most 
I remember sitting on the table was when we sat down and said Sarah Jane versus the Mona Lisa. <laughs> Which is the... I mean, that's the maddest idea in the world. And still, now, Suran Jones. We had Suran Jones. Oh, no. But just the idea that we literally laughed. I think you can see on screen that perhaps we laughed a bit too long. <laughs> it was the, such a glorious idea. God, that's funny. That. It's, yeah. it's absolute, it's just, it's proper kind of, it, it's, it's mental. It's mad. mad. That story is just like, why Absolutely is this? Absolutely mad. The Mona Lisa comes to life. How glorious. Well, what's she going to do? Oh, she can pull guns out of drawings. Okay, yeah, right. Threat yeah, level's yeah. here. Let's run. Come on. <laughs> uh, Rainbow Sky says, uh, my question is, the young cast of Sarah Jane Adventures was so key to the show uh, and all have yeah. gone on to do incredibly well. How hard was it to find that perfect cast or did you just know when they walked in the room? Oh, no, it's the normal audition process. Uh, but but then, yes, we did. Um, it was initially cast by Andy Pryor. Then Andy Brearley became our casting director on that, who's a brilliant man. He recently cast that film that's on Netflix about all the sharks trapped in the cellar. Um, see that film? Brilliant film. Not yet, um, no, no. He's a great man, Andy. Um, so it's the usual. I wish, I wish I could tell you magical stories, but you see 2,700 people and eventually the right person walks in... Um, and, and they were all people we'd never seen before. Cause, cause, yeah, I mean, some of them. And I've seen previous work of theirs. Uh, yeah. No, they were new to us all, I think. And um, you're discovering people like Angeli coming in, especially in not an easy position for Rani to replace Maria, um, and just flying. And look at Angeli now. She's mm. so in demand and everything. And, uh, yeah, gorgeous. So just hard work, no magical stories. And you whittle it down, and then you find those people lovely. Dan. Just Dan, Dan says, Hi Russell, Dan. you're a legend. Do yes. you have any stories that you'd like to tell us about working with Elizabeth Sladen? What was her reaction oh. when she was given the Sarah Jane Adventures? So that'd be a good oh. story. Like, what, what was that yes. meeting like? Oh, God. I mean, she's, she's very clever, Liz. So she was full of questions. I mean, she's not, a lot of actors would go, Hooray, where's the money? <laughs> and, and, brilliant. <laughs> and she was always marvelously proprietorial about Sarah Jane. She'd looked after Sarah Jane brilliantly. There was a line in school reunion about Sarah Jane drinking too much. And she just went, Can I take that out? Because um, uh, she just thought, you know, she said, People have followed this character for years and I've, I've looked after her. And, you know, I'm very ha- happy for the script to have said how much she's. It's been sad, it's been lonely, but that's just going into an adult territory slightly too fast. That's a good call. And also, whatever you want, Liz. <laughs> Anything Liz Slayton asks for, you do. But but the um, title sequence for K9 and Company's canon, Liz. We have to stick oh, true yes. to the previous work. <laughs> I've forgotten that. <laughs> Sarah Jane just supping wine in various pubs. What a piece of work. <laughs> um, and so, um, I mean, so yes, so we're not for, you know, went off with Sarah Jane um, I think she would how would it work she was full of she was as a person she was also full of doubts in a very intelligent way um, because she was clever enough to know the pitfalls and 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 she, like every actor she doubt herself um, and also like every actor she also had a steely core of knowing quite how good she was that she very rarely showed but of course she did you don't work that hard and be that good without knowing but she'd worry. So, um, but obviously, excited. You know, by the time we presented the Sarah Jane Adventures to her, she'd already worked in Cardiff. She'd worked with us. She knew she could trust us. In other words, and that's that's a big thing. Um, that's a huge part of the job, knowing people and trusting people. And so she knew she was going to something safe. So, um, yeah, she was delighted. It was. It was. It's work. You know. It's. It's. I wish I could describe a night where we all laughed and, and set off fireworks and stuff like that. But you know, you've got to work out how it works. And you know, you sit there making a promise. 
again, it's that thing of success being very hard work. And and that takes many forms. It, it's like when you get Catherine Tate to come on board the TARDIS, when you get Liz Sladen to come back, when you say, here's John Barron, here's your own show, you've got to deliver. So you, it's, a, it's a state of terror most of the time when you're asking someone to come and do a show, give up six months of your life, come and live in Cardiff, come and, come and be a face on screen. It's terrifying for us. And you've got to be good. You've got to be good. So um, that deep breath, that kind of little thrum of terror at the back of your throat is always there. And it's there for the actors and it's there for us, but that's what makes it good. She was definitely very proud of the show. I remember seeing the, oh, uh, God, B- yes. the BFI Death of the Doctor screening. Uh, it, was, it was herself and, and Katie were... Oh, uh, yeah, I was abroad then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, Katie Manning, she's wonderful, isn't she? She's, oh, um, God, yes. She's yes. Literally, like, th- th- when people say mad as a box of frogs, she is the box of frogs. <laughs> yeah, she's yes. just fizzing with energy and she's just... Uh, she's people wonderful. should just say as mad as Katie Manning, really. That should yeah, be <laughs> as friends. mad as... As mad as Katie Manning. Uh, but like Liz was, she, she was talking so much that night about like how proud she is of what they've built up. And oh, here she was at the really? the British Film Institute in front of an audience yeah. of, yes, like, you know, um, yeah. uh, 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 friends of, uh, you know, people who worked on the show and some journalists. And there was a lot of people like me who'd sort of like through Doxy Magazine yeah. and stuff. They go, do you want to come to that? I was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> and, and all these things. But there was so many kids in attendance that screening oh, that evening as well. Yeah. And it, just to see that audience, like, yeah, this is these are the people the show touches. Like here it's they my, are. It's my great joy that she became a star right again at the at the end of her life, just in those lovely years that she had. That she was loved again by children and by adults, by everyone all over again. That was when we won that national television award, and the entire cast of the Stolen Earth went up on stage. And she was with us. I was so more than anyone. I was so that Liz Slayton was on stage accepting an award for a program that had a name in the front titles. That was a perfect reward. I thought. Rebecca says, hey, Russell, I really enjoyed your work on SJA and Wizards vs. Aliens. Have ideas for adult programs morphed into a program for children and vice versa at any time? Ooh, that's interesting. I can't think of anything, I'm afraid. I know what you mean, but um, but um, I've, <laughs> I've always been too busy on both, really. Has an idea for one a show for one audience, maybe, just like one thread or character, then blends either like way if they've not been used Doctor Who story become uh, not that I can remember I'll probably finish this podcast and then remember something um, <laughs> but um, but in the way I was describing earlier the Cyberman invasion was too much for um, was too much for um, Sarah Jane no because they, they are different tones of voices so um, things, things didn't bleed in that sense um, you were digging up ideas the man who never was was an idea I'd submitted for Bugs Bugs. Really? Bugs. Many years earlier. Bugs. When I was a little boy writer, and they turned me down. Ha! They wouldn't do that now, would they? In fact, because I think they kind of said I hadn't stuck to the guidelines and so didn't even pay me for my treatment. Let's not even get into that now, Chris. But um, the, the hardships of freelance writing, ladies and gentlemen. The hardships of freelance writing? Where are they now? I'm also inclined to say. <laughs> um, that wasn't the writers, that was the producers. Um, so yes, that was an old, the, the, the idea about a man that, I mean, imagine, actually, imagine that done for adult television. Imagine it almost more like an episode of Spooks, a, a CEO of a company who's only ever seen on screen. And when did you or I last see Jeff Bezos? You know, when did we yeah. see these people? A, a very, very powerful CEO and someone notices him glitch. Yeah. Someone someone sees sees just a little, you know, line dropout or, or something. It's like, oh, he's not real. Uh, that's not on the screen, it's in him. 
so yeah, that, that that's the only one I can think of, actually, but that had been an adult idea. Well, if you want to call Bugs adult. But it was. It was, you know, seven-ish, eight-ish. Um, that idea had stuck around for a long, long time, and then we needed it. That's great. I'm glad that was our last story, anyway. It's so funny. Yeah. So there we go. That's one I can think of. I can't think of any others, sorry. Uh, I mean, I guess in a way, sometimes names and recurring elements have popped up in the works. So it's not, not so much the ideas switching yeah, hands, yeah, but yeah. you know, you'll know, you have your Smiths and your Joneses and your Vivian Rooks and these sort of recurring elements popping up in yeah, the different yeah, yeah. things. I Signatures. It made me laugh when the Scullions, or something to do with the Scullions in that story, they get mentioned in Tortured Miracle Day. There's like a smuggling path of, of aliens on Earth. They're not this, uh, the, in, in episode nine of Miracle Day, I think Captain Jack mentions that, and that made me laugh so much, knowing that all the Showtime um, executives would have no idea, the Stars executives all the Stars executives would have no idea that I was talking about little big one-eyed monsters from the Sarah Jane Adventures. <laughs> I didn't yeah, even they, catch they, that. They get into China. <laughs> they get into China. They get to Shanghai by following a smuggling route. And either he uses the, he says an old scullion smuggling route or there's something there that says that's the same. Because remember, the scullions were being sold in a world, kind of across the world. As, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that br- well, we'll get to Miracle Day in our rewatch in, I calculate, about a year and a two months' time. So <laughs> when we get there. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll we'll have to keep have to give it the, give it the once sure, over. I'm sure it's still there. I'm really sure it's still there. <laughs> oh, love that. Um, Dale Who says, firstly, I would like to thank Russell for his amazing work. You're a genuine legend. Oh, uh, my question is this: Was it difficult to end Sarah Jane's story in Farewell, Sarah Jane? For those who don't know, earlier uh, in 2020, a series of uh, short films and stories and and um, poems and and uh, song covers yeah. in one instance uh, came out to tie into Doctor Who watch-alongs. Uh, and Russell wrote a short story called Farewell, Sarah Jane, which yes. saw a lot of the cast participating in and returning, gave us lots of little tidbits. Um, Dale says, as a fan, uh, uh, the author and someone who worked closely with Liz over several years, did it feel like there was a lot of pressure to make a farewell a fitting one? Well, no, there was no... There, it wasn't difficult and there was no pressure because no one asked me to do that. No one said... Emily Cook, who ran all those things, they didn't come to me saying, will you write a, Sarah, a final Sarah Jane adventure? I said, let me write a final Sarah Jane adventure because that had been kind of building up in me for a while because I loved where we left the Sarah Jane adventures and mm. and if you want to, canonically, that is where it ended on that final statement saying her story goes on forever. Um, but I kind of felt that, 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 that we'd frozen Bannerman Road and I'd love someone to come into Children's BBC and say, let's have um, Yaz and Ryan move into 13 Bannerman Road and there's Mr. Smith in the wall or someone else, you know, do-do. Or, or anyone, in fact, a new character. You can have a brand, it doesn't have to be an old Doctor Who companion, a brand new character walk in and discover this computer and canine in a cupboard and the next thing you know, the Blatherine are invading and, oh, the neighbour's kids will get involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love that to happen, whether it ever will or not, I don't know. Actually, the thing I've discovered with Doctor Who is that most things you want to happen, happen in the end. So I think one day that could happen. So I wanted to kind of like unfreeze it and kind of say... If you don't want to face her death, then you don't have to. And that's a very personal and private thing for some people. Some people don't want to do that to the character. So we are in that sort of quasi-canon state of it being an online thing. It was put on the BBC website, but is it official? Is it real? Whatever. Um, But if you want to kind of face up to the fact that actually it has to move on, and there are new stories to be told, and with the greatest respect, it's a very respectful story towards her. So... So yeah, I loved all that. I loved those. I loved the balance, the layers, the choices there, the game. So you're also playing a game with canon. 
Is it canonical? Yeah. Is it not? And I, I love the chance to do that. So I'm aware of all those things and I'm using them. So that was a lovely thing to do. And also for me, it was a chance for all of us. That's why the cast leapt on board. Everyone was there. Angie's performance in that at the end is absolutely stunning. Um, you know, that's Angie Mahindra. She's one of the most in-demand actresses you could have in Britain right now. The fact she did that in her attic um, with Sasha recording it is just absolutely amazing. So it was an honour. So, yes, I loved doing it. I loved it. You mentioned playing with Canon a little bit. Um, it's something that's that's quite fun. That it was a reward for, say, parents or adults who weren't watching Sarah Jane regularly. How in uh, uh, Death of the Doctor sort of ends with a P.S. Here's where certain characters ended up, and and the farewell Sarah Jane sort of touches on the same oh, thing. Yes, like a little, nice little reward for the adults that watching, was... going like, you remember those stories you used to watch? Here's a yes. P.S. for them. Thank you for cheeky, watching this yes, with yes, your kids. Yes, like Thank a... you for watching this. <laughs> I've forgotten that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aditya uh, has asked something which we actually touched on, uh, which is why do you, uh, why did you create the spin-off for Doctor Who predominantly uh, aimed at young audiences? We, we've kind of touched on that we've one. We've done that, like, love. Nothing more can add. Done it. What I, what I will <laughs> ask then, I'll be cheeky, I'll give I'll give Adit a made-up question from me. If you were um, to create a spin-off for Doctor Who now aimed at a young audience, what would be your pitch? Oh, well, I could. No, I, I, not, I very, not a serious one, just in case, like, <laughs> just in case I'm, the BBC are like, hang on. I'd very seriously go back to Banwan Road. The house is, that's why I did it. The mm. house is sitting there. Mr. Smith is sitting there. Alexander Armstrong would do it at the drop of a hat. I think Kane, the fact that Canine isn't, is, is in a limbo worries me. I'm really sad that Canine doesn't belong anywhere at the moment. And, um, and isn't on screen. I love Canine. I really love him. So, um, yeah, that's give what it, I do. Give it to Bradley so, Walsh. I think, I think it's very interesting to see, you know, as you know, we're looking at, at the last ten years of the BBC now, and which will be very sad, and Doctor Who will suffer in some ways. But when it then becomes a money-making machine, which it'll have to become after after once the BBC is closed, it's very interesting. To look at what's happening with Star Trek, and you know, which is creating all sorts of them. You know, if you look at Janeway coming back, and you sort of think, you know, good lord, we love you know Wendy Padbury will be in the animated adventures of Zoe. Um, <laughs> genuinely, you know, it, yeah, it, 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 it's I'll like take that. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's there's, so it it could be it could be a very interesting. You know, not right now because the BBC is just in decline. Once it's gone for a genre property, it could be quite an explosive few years, I think. Who knows? Uh, DreamWorks, get on that. Netflix animated series, let's go. Molly, musical Muppet, says, when writing for uh, CBBC Age Children as a target audience, is there anything specific to keep in mind or advice that you would recommend? Obviously, kids are capable of handling a lot of topics, but are there things you'd avoid, for example, or actively encourage? I think questions like that are sound like time wasters to me. Get on with it and write your script, is my advice. It's like, that's kind of like, that question is basically saying, who am I? What shall I write? Can I do this? And it's like, just get on with it. Stop prevaricating. It, it, you, Molly, you musical muppet, you sound like you have scripts inside you. Stop letting these questions get in the way. You're just sitting there going, is this too well done? Is this too well? Just start to write it. If it's for seven-year-olds, write it like seven-year-olds. If it's for 15-year-olds, write it like a 15-year-old. You know this. It's in you. You've been seven. You've been 15. If there are some notes, if some bits have to be lost, if some bits have to be beefed up, that can all come in the second draft. But those are dithering questions, really, that are just stopping you from writing. Get on with it. Molly, you've got three months for the first draft. <laughs> on my desk by January. Yep. No, your uh, desk, Chris, is you're doing all the work. Yeah. Oh, oh great. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, last two questions. Are you okay for time, by the way? Yes. Two questions is good. Thank you. No, last two questions. 
Chewy Mort, aka Olin, says, looking back in the years since uh, Sarah Jane Adventures, um, are there any villains you would have liked to have used instead of ones you did? So I suppose that would tie into the Cyberman mentioned before. Is there any other sort of monster or, or even a, an original villain for the show that you're like, oh, we didn't do that, but that would have been good? Oh, not manly. I think his real name is Chewbacca Mort. Chewy Mort. <laughs> <laughs> well, technically, technically, it's pronounced. So, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Ooh, nice noise. Well done. Um, is there any? I can't think of an answer to that really because it's not the way I think. I don't sit there going, "Oh, I wish we'd done this. I wish we'd done that." Um, um, I always wish we put the Slitheen back into Doctor Who. I always think there was a kind of assumption that, like, oh, they found their natural home, which is to be in a younger story in the Sarah Jane Adventures. I love the Slitheen, and quite I why them. I didn't do. I know I love them, and um, I, I, you just want a newness with Doctor Who, as you need to keep it moving on. But um, the fact that I never did David Tennant versus the Slitheen is a shame, a great shame. Uh, yeah, I would have loved that. Um, it's hard to say. Nothing I can think of immediately. I would always, I would certainly. This isn't quite the question you're asking. I would. We'd have found some way to bring Ruby White back. I think I love Ruby White. I really, yeah. really thought she was brilliant. She was sent off into the outer reaches of space, into the, and also to have done much more with Floella Benjamin. It was a joy working with her. Yes. Floella yeah. behind the scenes, behind the scenes, Floella's proper. When I talk about budget problems and problems with children's BBC, beyond the call of duty, she was a great champion of the show and would help us and give us advice, and tell us who to talk to, and would support it, publicise it. And she's the loveliest woman on earth. And um, so, yeah, you'd have seen a lot more of her if I'd have, if we'd have kept going. My spin on that question is: uh, Would you ever brought the trickster back for one more SmackDown? Oh, the trickster would have come back every year. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I know he's always defeated and stuff like that. But I lo- actually maybe I would have brought the trickster into Doctor Who because I love that the trickster's power yeah. was awesome. Really, really, truly awesome. I, I, I he was a bit like um, no one ever remembers this. Do you remember the creep in Judge Dredd? Yeah. There's, a very, there's a villain who only appeared like three times in Judge Dredd who's so powerful, even the dark judges backed away from him. And he's, kind of yeah. little funny, he's kind of a little funny man who goes, tra-la-la, and lives in the Undercity. So powerful, he could like change reality. The judges were scared of him. And I always thought the trickster had that sort of capacity to him of being, like Davros would run away from the trickster. The, the, the fact that when he first appeared, he said, I'm nothing. He was just nothing. I love that mm. character. So yes, 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 yes. Every year he would have come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was the plan that Sky was the daughter of the trickster. That would always have been the final story of series five. She was, she was a trap. It wasn't just a space baby left on Sarah Jane's doorstep. It was a great big trickster trap. Oh, what a shame. Amazing. <laughs> she was a reverse Dawn. A reverse Dawn Summers. Yes. Otherwise, like you ended night. the series with, P.S., <laughs> this is what's really going on, you bah, bah, swines. Bah. Um, finally, this on PS3, Aiden asks, was there any difficulties transitioning from uh, sort of bigger budget shows for adult television uh, back to uh, shows for kids TV and vice versa? So between sort of, you know, early career, working later, and then, you know, uh, family stuff, Doctor Who and, and Sarah Jane, and then going back to doing things like Cucumber, for example. Like, is, is, there a, is it a difficult transition for you? Do you have two settings? No, to be honest, it's, it's, it's easy. It's, it's, um, I, I always drive people mad with the budget. I mean, that's a fact. I write quite expensively. Even Cucumber. Cucumber is essentially a domestic show set in Manchester in ordinary houses. But even that's saying, like, the biggest flat they could possibly live in and and has a lot of night shoots, has a lot of nighttime material that always uh, eats up a budget 
because I, I think we watch most television at night. I think it works. Television set at night works at night when you're watching it. I really love doing that. I think it, the picture chimes a little bit more with, with the world that you're actually in at the time. I'm from a, the days before streaming, of course, when you'd watch on transmission. But, um, but again, we're mostly watching at night, I think. So, um, yeah, um, so not madly. I'm just, I, I'll always be cheeky and exceed what you can do. Equally, I'm not... I'm, I don't write vast stuff. I mean, you'd always wish. You'd always wish. There's a version of The Stolen Earth that does have an Avengers budget. Seriously. I mean, imagine those fleets of Daleks burning Africa. You know, imagine the size and scale of what you could have done. Um, but I also think that's kind of inherent in there. I think I think if you're 10 years old watching The Stolen Earth, that's how you see it. That's the fun, you know, or the parting of the ways. That's, that's the fun. You get that. Or, you know, Doomsday, with all those six million, billion Cybermen all over the Earth. Um, you get it. So I think, although I wish we could have shown more, we could have had bigger budgets, I think kids saw it that way in their heads. So, no, not really. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, as far as that story goes, for me, the, 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 the emotional height and the biggest kick is that, is that lovely moment with everybody piloting the TARDIS together. Because yeah. as, a, as a young audience member, because on transmission I was... Uh, 17 at that point so you know you're younger than i am now less aware of the horrors that awaited me um but like it it the the emotional crux of it was every bit as big as a as a, as a yeah. massive blockbuster set piece could be and, and yes, yes, yes. Uh, i i guess i want to round this out basically by saying thank you for bringing that to younger audiences because this show is about celebrating the respect given to that younger audience and, and working for them and telling those stories and there are many out there who can do it, but none do it quite with your voice. So thank you. Oh, so hush, there's very brilliant much, people sir. out there, like Emma Reeves, great people. But thank you. I really, really expect that. Thank you. Thank you. It, I'm delighted that as a fan before, I got to lead into some of your shows while I was working with CBBC, which is very nice. It was nice to tick oh. off the bucket list. I mean, there we go. Chris Intro to Sarah Jane. Fantastic. Done it. Oh, um, well, I'll, see, I'll see you in bed later. Thank you. Okie dokes, right. <laughs> uh, big, spoon or, big spoon or little spoon tonight? I'm so big spoon, darling. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, we sound awful. Thank you. I love that. And hooray for those audiences and, and in the battles to come, in the battles to come over the next 10 years, as you lose your BBC, the fight for something as magnificent as children's BBC is going to be extraordinary. And we're already losing. And I hope everyone listening will join that fight because... There are people and powers ranged against you. Take up arms. Do what the heroes do. Hooray. And by arms, I mean your actual arms. Right, right. don't attack anybody. (laughs) We're leaving on a terrible message. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. (laughs) Hooray. That was good. Out of the Broom Cupboard is produced, edited, and presented by Christopher Johnson. That's me. My guest this week was Russell T. Davies. The theme music is Look Busy by Kevin McLeod. Links and information in the description of this episode. If you'd like to fund the show and get perks between now and the next series, go to patreon.com slash OOTBC for as little as $2 a month. You can join the Discord server and much more. And until next time, look after yourselves. I love you to bits. Goodbye. Goodbye.